Shabbat Shalom, Hebrews and Hebrews. This is the Unexpected Cosmology. You guys probably knew that. And of course, my name is Noel Joshua Hadley. This is called The End of the Millennial Kingdom. It's been something I've been thinking about a long time. Now, since I first started writing and coming out about the mud flood slash Tartary slash the Millennial Kingdom, whatever you want to call it, I have I have been very slow at at um, at naming dates, coming up with dates, being like it started here, it ended there. People ask me all the time, when did it start? When did it end? And I'm like, well, it's a lot more complicated than that because I can give you numbers. I could say 500 to 1500, but I'm not really sure it really worked out that way. Um, I've talked in the past about how there's like a thousand years of missing to- uh, missing dates, which is interesting, and they seem to come to an end in the 700s and pick up in the 1700s. So, and people will be like, "What? So you're saying that uh, 700 years passed uh, between Messiah and Millennial Kingdom? No, I'm saying probably 500 years. But keep in mind that the the dates that Rome was putting out there doesn't necessarily line up with reality. So, uh, you know, at what point did they start counting in the A.D., right? So all these things to consider. Uh, I will be um, uh, dropping dates tonight, and I'm not, I'm not firm on these dates. I'm having a hard time getting started. So let's just get right into this. This is The End of the Millennial Kingdom by yours truly, Noel Joshua Hadley. You can see on the second page, all the contents. We're going to be reading through this whole thing tonight. And I'm not even coming close to covering all the events that I think happens around the end of the Millennial Kingdom. I mean, this this could be a book. I mean, we could I could give several presentations on this. And depending on if you guys like it or not, uh, I might. We'll, we'll see. I'll let the jury decide. All right. Starting on page, I think this is page three. Leaving Neverland, an introduction to the end. To be forthright and honest, I don't even know where to begin an investigation such as this one nor do I have insider's knowledge of where it is headed. I get asked the question all the time, though. If it is true what you are saying, that we are living in the short season of deception, then what happened to the Millennial Kingdom? I don't know is my best answer, but I thought it was eternal, is the other objection. It is. You also just called it the Millennial Kingdom. That was your first mistake. The very title prophesizes a thousand-year reign rather than an ongoing one, meaning it begins until the ticker winds down, ding, signaling the end of an era. You can't have it both ways. The end of the kingdom was probably the first question I had when beginning to suspect that the thousand-year reign had already happened. How could the um, Edenic, Eden, Edenic, vision fail all over again which is what the the thousand year reign was it was you know eden on earth right and so i suppose you could say this isn't my first rodeo if we're being technical then everything you are about to read or perhaps not read or maybe in your case listen to is a spin-off from my very first millennial kingdom write-up wastelands of the seraphim Uh, I have since updated that paper and will continue to do so. That was when I wanted to figure out and start this investigation. Some of you listening tonight were there for it. That's where I was like, okay, I want to know how it came to an end. And I want to see if anything in scripture can relate to that. And that that paper came out of that. 
read if read it if you haven't already or give it a listen much of what i aim to say will undoubtedly be predicated upon your understanding of the spiritual realm's part in all of this don't say i didn't warn you are you seriously still reading i have i have just counted several sentences between the provided link and this one the further you get into this the less likely you are to follow the bunny rabbit trail thereby resolving some unresolved inquiries that last claim is probably a statistic. Oh, fine. Be confused then. I, and don't read it. I don't really care. I won't say this again so as to erase any confusion, some of which I am beginning to think is intentional. The kingdom of heaven is eternal and well beyond the overreach of the serpent. Whereas the thousand-year reign of Mashiach upon the earth is the story of humanity in a nutshell. Even if Satan is imprisoned and incapable of temptation, people still choose sin. They choose rebellion against his uh, righteous ways. Despite basking in the warm light of Elohim, the children created in his image will look to the fork in the road ahead and take the wide road of rebellion. They will desire the curse rather than the blessing and Yahuwah Elohim has a habit of handing them over to it. I could offer scriptural references as proof, but then I might as well just hand you the Bible and tell you to read it starting from the opening cover. Read it through until the end. Be sure not to skip any parts, because doing away with Yahuwah's commands is quite literally a human pastime and the overriding plot of the book which billions of people claim to adhere to. And we read this in Romans 5, 20-21. Moreover, the Torah entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin has reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life. By Yahuwah HaMashiach, our Adonai. I don't know if you guys can hear music in the background right now, but there's a live band playing, and it's like really loud. So hopefully you guys can't hear that. An impromptu decision was made to offer you the passage, which has recently become a favorite of mine. Many Christians will read the closing statements to the fifth chapter of Romans and insist Paul is casting the Torah into a negative light. He isn't. The total opposite is true. He is casting those who rebel against Yahuwah Elohim when claiming it has been done away with in a bad light. The context of Paul's statement is Sinai. Korah's rebellion rings a bell. That is what the Torah does. It causes men to rebel. Yahuwah's instructions in righteous living is not the cause of men's woes. Man is. So do us all a favor and stop blame shifting. The Torah is not is not the problem. Regardless, many paint the portrait of a barbarous Elohim who brings his children out into the desert simply so that he might set them up to fail, big time, via the Torah, which is perceived as some sick and sadistic social experiments. By that same logic, we are often told Jesus arrived to let us in on a little secret. They were trying too hard in listening to the Demirge character, and it is only the prophets and a select few others who understood it. God apparently wasn't being serious when telling us to guard his commands, after all. All the more reason to rid ourselves of the Torah, in any ways. Wasn't the law nailed to the cross or something? How does that go again? 
There are, of course, numerous variations to the laws done away with doctrine, a flavor for every month. I'm not going to get into all of them. And yet, however one cuts ties with Elohim's instructions and to what denominator, those who revel in their lawlessness never seem to appreciate the irony. Paul is not stating the Torah is the problem. No way, no how. Quite the opposite. The only side effect to the Torah is that it exposes man's heart. Go ahead and read Exodus for yourself. The Torah itself proves that rebellion increases whenever and wherever man is pressed to conform to Elohim's standard of righteous living. Sure, man wants to be declared righteous, but more often than not on their own terms. Certainly not as the Torah describes righteousness, because at the end of the day, the true character of Yahuwah, the Most High Elohim of Yasharel, is repulsive to the obstinate sinner, being unwilling to repent of his wrongs and conform. In truth, the Torah must be done away with by nearly every successive generation in order to justify rebellion as, wait for it, God's will for their life rather than Satan's will. How do you suppose the Millennial Kingdom rebels phrased it? I'm sure there was no short, uh, short supply of doctrinal statements. Paul's conclusion makes the contrast even more stark. Seeing as how the offenses against Elohim only multiply after the Torah is confronted, leading, of course, to death as it always has, and we'll be talking about some of that tonight, do you really think Yahushua's reign of righteousness would also be caught holding hands with the rebellion against his father? Try not to let cognitive dissonance win the day. And so, that is what I am saying when claiming the millennial kingdom came to an end. The Torah was done away with. Release the Kraken. The first thought that sprung to my mind in addressing all of this, believe it or not, was the Steven Spielberg movie, Hook. You may recall the ending of the outing, wherein Robin Williams wakes up by the statue of Pan in the park. I, I know. I am asking you to set aside the obvious connections between Peter Pan and the pirates and the Lost Boys of Neverland with pedophilia and rape and all-around human trafficking for the moment. It's like I can't mention one without the other, or my readers will begin thinking I've started up a steady blue pill diet. Not going to happen. Still red-pilling it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as dessert. The scene I am thinking of doesn't help the situation either. The pirate Smee, played by Bob Hoskins in the movie, is clearly seen sweeping up as if to keep a lookout on the next potential lost boy, if you get my meaning. Again, though, I'm asking you to set that aside for the moment and try to wrap your head around the profound significance of Pan waking to consciousness. The last time something like this happened, the boy who swore never to grow up altogether forgot that he had been the Pan Man. The forgetting part is central to the plot of the movie. I have long asked myself how something like that could happen. Forgetting one's former life seemed to require a leap in logic, but only because I did not understand the esoteric qualities of the J.M. Barry narrative, let alone the reality of our own former standing as a son of Elohim in the pre-existence game. The reason why Peter Pan so easily forgot he was the Pan Man in another life and ultimately betrayed himself by 
by welcoming what he swore never to become, an adult, has much and everything to do with the spiritual reality of Neverland. It exists on a spiritual plane. The 2003 Peter Pan movie really seems to nail it. The astral projection element of Neverland travel as Pan and Tink take the children on a voyage through the cosmos. First star to the ride and straight on to morning. Did I get that right? Sounds Masonic if you ask me. But even the hook outing manages the same approach. Do you recall what Tinkerbell told Robin Williams? In the closing scene, that is. Uh, here is her feral message verbatim. You know that place between sleep and awake? That place where you still remember dreaming? That's where I'll always love you, Peter Pan. That's where I'll be waiting. What Tinkerbell is describing is precisely where Peter Pan finds himself at that very moment. He is in the in-between place, bookended by the dream and the waking. The adventure is still... The, the adventure is still remembered, but the realities of his life in London are quickly coming into focus. That pits him in a very dangerous position because, to the careful observer, he is capable of forgetting his doppelganger godself all over again, so long as he remains unfocused or lacking discipline. The next few minutes will be of the utmost importance. Details will very likely slip away. And in a worst-case scenario, all will be lost. It's why we forget nearly every dream almost immediately after waking. So far as I'm concerned, the missing memory mystery as it relates to our nightly rotunda of dreams has never been adequately answered. Changing levels of um, uh, acolytoclin... Uh, I can't pronounce I'm sorry. Um, and uh, norepinephrine... <laughs> <laughs> I sound like a sleep with it. Not to mention that we have several different fluctuating brain waves: gamma, beta, alpha, theta, and delta. That's just another fancy way of saying the information is filed away somewhere in our consciousness, but accessing it is often beyond our know-how. The shortest explanation may have more to do with a lack of discipline rather than anything else which is what I'm proposing with the Millennial Kingdom. The thousand-year reign of Messiah wasn't simply spiritual, nor was it merely physical. It was both planes of existence overlaid upon and cohabitating with the other. Or you might say a fulfillment of the prayer on earth as it is in heaven. What happens when the spiritual component is removed? Yes, that is what I am suggesting. That the kingdom came to the end of its ticker and was prof prophesied to do so because the people chose rebellion rather than obedience. In pan terms, or the movie Hook, you might even say they desire to grow up and join the pirates. Wishes when aligned with the desires of one's heart do come true. I doubt this is the last time that I will remind you it's quite literally the story of the Bible. You can choose the blessing or the curse. And so, what happened when the lights turned off? I'm not really sure on that one. The controllers got into position on the stage, most likely. There were also new props set about, seeing as how this was the next act in the play. The old relics of the kingdom remained, some of them at least. They would need new explanation for the normies, but that, as we know, was accomplished particularly since the lights did turn on again. And when that happens, the world awoke and forgot all about it. 
All right. This next section is called the Knight Templar Hoax, which I'm particularly excited about. Shortly before daybreak on the morning of Friday the 13th, administer, administers of King Philip's crown swept in upon Templar knights, still hitting the hay for the night, and promptly arrested them. The year was 1307. Reports involve as many as 2,000 Templars being rounded up in one fell swoop, while more conservative, conservative retellings place the number closer to 700, of which only 50 to 100 were actual knights. I have even seen the number placed as high as 15,000 in one night. Yeah, right. This is the same King Philip the Fair of France who somehow managed to kidnap Pope Boniface the that would be the eighth in 1303 with the help of hired goons and hold him hostage for three consecutive days. LOL. I am giving you the official recollection of things and it's all scripted. The Templars did nothing to protect their beloved Pope, by the by. It is town locals, we are told, who were finally able to repel King Philip's child play. We are furthermore told there was no resistance from the Templars in 1307, despite a network of fortifications. What is the purpose of a castle if you refuse to defend yourself? These are the sort of uh, castles which Templars are said to have cozied up to, and in nearly every pocket of Europe. There was a great deal more than what I am sharing, though most, we are told, have been conveniently destroyed after the fact. No big surprise there. How thick do you suppose those walls are, and how would one even serve up an arrest warrant for the inhabitants holed up behind them? They are not only well fortified, but I'm also not seeing anything resembling a siege. Not even uh, Jacques de Molay, their Grand Master, was protected. Most simply vanished into the night. King Philip provided a stack of paperwork and then had them sent out by couriers an entire month before the siege. Like We're talking like 30 days that these arrest warrants were just floating around. Nobody said anything. Friday the 13th landed in October, and so we're looking at mid-September for the dispatches. Their arrest warrant began with the following words. Uh, let's see if I can... <laughs> I'm not going to even try... That's French. I'm not going to try to pronounce that. Uh, I'm de so I'm detecting French. Definitely written by a Frenchman. Sounds serious as well. Let's see if I can even try this. Deu n'est pas content noe... Avons des enemies de la foi dans les... I, I apologize for taking you through that activity. Sounds snooty, but serious, even if it's illegible. Supposing you need that spilled out for you in English, then here you go. I did take this to a, um, a translator online. And it says, God is not pleased. We have enemies of the faith in the kingdom. Oh, dear. I can't recall the last time I read anything so blatantly Orwellian, whereas the meaning of every word can be reversed. Though, as I was saying, not one senior officer of the Templar Order warned any member of his brotherhood regarding the orders that were floating around, according to the official narrative. Even stranger is the significant number of Templars who slipped away in the harbor at La Rochelle. That would be the western coast of France. 
As many as 15,000 arrests were not carried out until sunrise so that Templars might slip quietly into the night. An entire fleet disappeared and was never seen nor heard from again, causing many to speculate that they'd sailed to the New World. But I'm thinking it may have been the chunk of real estate which is presently known to us as the Hidden Wilderness. Mind you, I am giving the official story. Though even by, I'll be giving a lot of official stories tonight, though even by their standards, the Templar trials to follow was a Nuremberg stylized kangaroo court. In a past paper, I had claimed the entire incident to be a scripted hoax, the, the Templar incident. The arrest and the disappearing act, the confessions to follow, and probably even Molay's torturous end. But I'm not so sure what to make of it anymore, all things considered. I take it the promises of Yahusha Hamashiach are still in your peripheral vision. That should be a given in this conversation. Tell me what you see in these pictures then. The convent of Christ in Tamar, Portugal, has all the familiar markings of a millennial kingdom habitat. I have already been over the peculiars uh, in my Kings and Priests of the Thousand Year Reign paper. I uh, gave that in a video and won't be revisiting them again. Take another look at the Portuguese castle grounds. It was built by the Templars. What's more, Tomar is claimed to have become the seat of the Templars during the second quarter of the 13th century. In 1190-1190, the same convent resisted the armies of Caliph Abu Yusuf al-Manzur when they encircled it. Meanwhile, the very flamboyant French king achieved success with those flamboyant fingers of his, casting thousands of arrest orders to the wind. Ridiculous. Following the dissolution of the Templar order, Pope John the uh, XII transferred party membership to the Order of Christ so that the Portuguese and the Spanish could commence with their maritime exploration, as if that's not suspicious. We are often reminded that Freemasonry descends from the ranks of the Templar and that the bad guys are being outed by the RCC of all people. Is that so? But then it would be another thing entirely to say our controllers are simply the inheritors of a former order and that the Templars themselves are being claimed as part of that controlled opposition game. Nobody does that better than Rome. The way the Pope hugs the Bible to his bosom is simply adorable, if I do say so myself. I could see this going either way. In the very least, it is worth considering that something far more is going on with the Templar narrative than anyone has dared to acknowledge. The wartime propaganda couldn't become any more obvious, and in fact, painfully so, once William Imbut, the chief inquisitor of France, arrived at the confessional booth. The Paris interrogations involved a total of 138 Templars and probably no shortage of torture tactics. The most popular routine apparently involved greasing the soles of their feet with fats or butter and then rolling them over a regulated fire until the roasting uh, drove its victim raving mad. Another routine involved tethering someone's arms behind him and then raising the said person from the ground so that his shoulders were dislocated. It is no wonder, then, that the accusations against the Templars soon grew to a total of 127. The tortures were ongoing. The initial trials ran from October 19th to November 24th, 1307, but the Pope was still investigating as of 1311. 
The first tell-all derived from John of Feligny. His involved a uh, his confessions about the Templars involved a windowless room complete with a checkered floor. There's your Masonic floor, starry ceiling, and a box containing a skull, two thigh bones. Uh, there's your you know classic pirate flag and a white burial shroud. But then, as the list grew, the Templars were said to endorse the worship of cats, condoning theft, denying Christ, spitting upon the cross indulging in carnal relations with fellow members of the order, wearing a belt which had been consecrated by touching a strange idol that happened to resemble a human head with a long beard, and kissing each other on the mouth, the navel, and the lower spine uh, during secret ceremonies. Grandmaster Malay admitted to having renounced Christ and spitting near a cross, though not directly on it. He urged other Templars to confess as well. The thing about Malay is that he answered only to the Pope of Rome. The man was 63 years old, and somehow we are expected to believe he was given a mock crucifixion in line with Hamashiach, which included being nailed to a door before being laid in a conveniently harbored Masonic burial shroud. The Grand Master even lived to tell the story. They then tortured him all over again in 1314, some seven years after the initial arrests were made. He was reportedly burnt at the stake on the Isle de, uh, what is that, Javol in the Seine. That very well may have been a hoax. The fiery end of the Templars could easily have been managed by King Philip's own version of the Pinkerton crew, dressed up like peasants for the uh, canvas painting. If you didn't catch that, I'm saying that uh, it was probably Intel standing around for the the torture and burning of many of these people, and it could have all been staged. But again, I don't know what to believe anymore. Several years ago, I would have sat here and told you the entire downfall of the Templars was a stage performance from the start. I would have said our controllers invented a straw man so that its intended audience might gasp at the flatulence once the curtain was pulled. You know, all the claims about them. The occultism was purposed to blindside normies to the truth in plain sight, you see. Included among the accusations were ritual murders. These are all things we talk about today. I nearly forgot to tell you that part. Ritual murders, hmm? Do you see what they did there? The demise of the Templars was a ritual murder, if ever I've observed one, even if it was a scripted psyop. The Inquisitors projected when, in fact, practically everything they described points the fingers right back at our Roman controllers, not necessarily at the Templars. Now I'm thinking we may be peering in upon an actual conspiracy against the kingdom of Yahushua HaMashiach. More specifically, the occasion when the cards were laid on the table by the sons of Hasatan and their plot was executed. I am more than willing to be wrong about this one, just so you guys all know. Uh, and this, you know, obviously the Templars are villainized to no end by the conspiracy crowd, but it's set up that way. It will likewise take a suspicion of belief for some of my readers, admitting we've been duped by the propaganda again. But then consider what we've already learned through the investigation. There is a priestly fighting force guarding the camp of Yah. We are often told the Templars were keeping safe passage to the grounds of the destroyed temple in Yerushalayim long after the events of Revelation, 
per perhaps it wasn't really that temple. All right, the Great Famine of 1315. I will swing back around to the Knights Templar at the end of this. I need to pause for another swig of coffee. Hopefully you're all still hanging in there. The Great Famine of 1315. So this is like a good uh, decade after the Knights Templar. Arriving in the wake of the torturous Templars episode was the Great Famine of 1315, and already I can hear the brewing protest. Many of my contemporaries are junking history into the wastebasket, but I have yet to see the benefit in that action, and I've been partially responsible for that myself. The logic insists that the books were completely fabricated by our controllers and that I am falling for the dangling carrot trick when reading about the various events given to us. Look, I am well aware that the news is fake and that hoaxes make pretend a world of pure imagination all the time. History probably doesn't fare much better, and I, in fact, I know it doesn't. I will remind you, though, that Satan isn't much of an inventor. What he is particularly good at is pinching the nipple and then selling us on the titty twist. The normies like it that way, but I don't. A great example of that right this weekend uh, was that that uh, Chinese balloon that had everyone in hysteria, right? I, I don't question for a moment that there was a balloon up there, uh, obviously a satellite. Uh, but everything we were being told was just, you know, it was the, the twist. Perhaps if I'm in the mood, then I may consider giving you some practical examples. I just gave you one as to how the lie rather than the invention plays out in a present short season. Um, the best example I can give, uh, I'll go there tonight again, is, is Auschwitz. Uh, I won't talk about that right now. You can go read that paper uh, for yourself. Uh, how they can take something that is true and cast it into a detestable lie. My serial reader, however, is a connect-the-dot specialist by this point and would rather watch me take the polar bear plunge. And so, getting back to what I was originally saying, the Great Famine of 1315 appears to be the starts of the slip-and-slide, what they would say the end of the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages. Official history describes it as the first in a series of large-scale disasters that befell Europe during the closing centuries of the Middle Ages. The Great Famine is said to have caused millions of deaths. According to estimates, anywhere from 10 to 25% of the urban population died, with as many as 80% of the sheep and cattle, though the numbers we are given was only the opening course to the coming judgment. We haven't even gotten to the Black Plague yet. It swept over nearly the whole of Northern Europe, and in record-breaking time, Ireland, Great Britain, France, Scandinavia, the Netherlands, Deutschland, and Poland were crippled before the year was out. Only Europe, uh, south of the Alps, we're talking Italy and southern Spain, as well as the lands east of Poland and sections of Byzant Byzantium, avoided the disaster. And of course, this is official history talking. That is what we're sometimes told, but even they were affected. And others will, t will tell you that. It is this famine, historians will note, which brought an end to the growth and prosperity which Europe had otherwise experienced. It all began with bad weather in the springtime, 1316, as you already know. Crop failures were immediate, lasting until well after the summer harvest in 1317. The same period was marked by extreme levels of crime, disease, and even cannibalism and infecticide, the last of which is another nice term for child sacrifice. They will tell you this, like, just look on Wikipedia. They're like, yeah, Europe took up cannibalism and child sacrifice. They're like, what? 
the axiom on earth as it is in heaven is important in all of this. The, the occult has their own variations, like as above, so below, which is speaking of the darker principalities in the realm below the firmament and ties in nicely with Ordo ad Chao, uh, Order Out of Chaos. The Great Famine of 1316 sounds nothing like the former blessing, though, and far more like the curses attributed to the, the latter. And why is that? Well, as I've already stated, man is to blame for his own rebellion. There are passages in scripture which address the very issue, and I aim to show them. The first on my list comes from a favorite of mine, Third Baruch, and this is what it says. And when I had learnt all these things from the archangel, he took and led me into a fourth heaven. Now, context here is he's talking about the mysteries of seven different heavens. Um, and don't need to get into all that here, but just the cosmology. And I saw a, a monotonous plain, and in the middle of it, a pool of water. And there were in it multitudes of birds of all kinds, but not like those here on earth. But I saw a crane as great as great oxen, and all the birds were great beyond those in the world, in this world. And I asked the angel, what is the plain and what the pool and what the multitudes of birds around it and what the what? And the angel said, listen, Baruch, the plain which contains in it the pool and other wonders is the place where the souls of the righteous come when they hold converse living together in choirs. Pause. You've, you've heard it said, on earth as it is in heaven, I've said that a couple times tonight, but very few people stop to ponder if the polar opposite is true as well, in heaven as it is in the earth, because that appears to be the scene which Baruch witnessed. The worship of Yahuwah among mortal men affected the resources in heaven, which might then cycle back around to the earth. It will be deemed strange by some to hear the angel proclaiming the souls of righteous mortals assemble in the pool of water in heaven, the fourth heaven, when they are in fact holding converse on the earth. But then do recall Baruch's relationship with the temple in Yerushalayim. Worship was his avenue of research. Livelihood would be a better word. Baruch was being shown the relationship between earthly worship and the reality it manifested in the various pliers of heaven. Continuing. Uh, with third Baruch. But the water is that which the clouds receive and rain upon the earth and the fruits increase. And I said again to the angel of Yahuwah, but what are these birds? And he said to me, they are those which continually sing praise to Yahuwah. And I said, Adonai, and how do men say that the water which descends in rain is from the sea? And the angel said, the water which descends in rain, this also is from the sea and from the waters upon earth. But that which stimulates the fruits is only from the later source. Know therefore henceforth that from this source is what is called the dew of heaven. Third Baruch chapter 10. We have just received another connection between the heavenly realms and the earth. In fact, two of them, if the birds are taken into consideration. Birds are, uh, well, it looks like I crossed that out there, but birds are doing each morning at sunrise while chirp, chirp, chirping their little darling heads off. They're it's a connection with heaven. That's a whole different conversation. They are tweeting songs of praise to Yahuwah, but also doing you a service and helping you rise on uh, the right side of the bed. The water in the pool is an offering plate for the clouds, whereas showers of rain might increase fruit upon the earth below. This is the same pool, mind you, where the souls of the righteous congregate while singing hymns together. Hopefully you guys are following. Their worship is directly related with the measure of rain in the clouds. 
We are even given a little science, condensation. That is the process of water vapor turning back into liquid water, with the best example being those big fluffy clouds floating over your head. It is only after the water droplets in the clouds combine that they become heavy enough to form raindrops, hence precipitation. But before condensation and precip uh, precipitation can occur, we have a process called evaporation. The transformation of, I'm taking you guys back to, I think, fourth grade uh, science class here. The transformation of liquid into a gas called water vapor. No, the water from a rain puddle is not vanishing on a hot sunny day. Water doesn't become nothing. The cyclic process is continuing. You guys all know this. Notice how Baruch asked Adonai, how do men say that the water which descends in rain is from the sea? You see, the water cycle was well understood in his own day. The difference here is that Baruch is being taught the spiritual side of things. Precipitation is directly related worship from the righteous. It is only in this method that fruit can be produced upon the earth. The Aramaic Targum confirms the very thing, so follow along. It says, uh, this is Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, Sons of Yasharel, my people, ye shall not be thieves, nor companions, nor partakers with thieves. There shall not be seen in the congregations of Yasharel a thievish people, that your sons may not arise after you to teach one another to have part with thieves. For on account of the guilt of theft, famine cometh forth upon the world. Sons of Yasharel, my people, you shall not testify against your neighbor a testimony of falsehood, nor be companions or partakers with those who bear false witness. Nor shall there be seen in the congregations of Yasharel a people who testify of falsehood. Neither shall your son arise after you to teach one another to have part with those who testify falsehood. For because of the gift of... Uh, because of the guilt of false testimony, the clouds go up, and the rain cometh not down, and dryness cometh upon the world. I probably should have given some background. Context is a good thing. We have just read from the Ten Commandments, specifically the Eighth and Ninth Commandments. And as you can plainly see, the consequence of thievery is famine, whereas the result of false testimony is a lack of rain. Worship of the Most High Elohim is obviously absence in either action. One might even say stealing from Yah in word and deed, as well as giving false testimony about him, produces famine and droughts upon the face of the earth. It is because of the righteous, or should I say lack thereof, in which the water cycle withers up. The direct application to all of this, as you know, is the Great Famine of 1315. Keep it in your peripheral vision while reading the following account, because Yasher confirms the same chain of events. So this comes from Jasher chapter 5. But in the latter days of Methuselah, Methuselah, the sons of men turned from Yahuwah, they corrupted the earth, they robbed and plundered each other, and they rebelled against Elohim. That quick context here, Enoch is taken up to heaven, um, and when Enoch is taken up, the kings of the earth, by the way, who are fallen angels, uh, they they basically crowned Methuselah king. They wanted to be king of the world. And so he's like, okay, uh, well, as my first act, let's be obedient to the father. And they're like, nope, not going to happen. Anyways. And they rebelled against Elohim, and they transgressed, and they corrupted their ways, and would not hearken to the voice of Methuselah, but rebelled against him. And Yahuwah was exceedingly wroth against them, and Yahuwah continued to destroy the seed in those days, so that there was neither sowing nor reaping in the earth. 
For when they sow the ground in order that they might obtain food for their support, behold, thorns and thistles were produced, which they did not sow. Very different picture than how um, we're often taught that the pre-flood world looked like. It was a land of famine. And still the sons of men did not turn from their evil ways, and their hands were still extended to do evil in the sight of Elohim. And they provoked Yahuwah with their evil ways, and Yahuwah was very wroth and repented that he had made man. And at that time the sons of men sowed the ground, and a little food was produced. Yet the sons of men did not turn from their evil ways, and they trespassed and rebelled against Elohim. So And so, after Enoch ascended to heaven, the kings of the earth anointed his son Methuselah, making him the first recorded sovereign ruler over the whole earth. Those kings were, as I mentioned, it's funny, I just got ahead of myself, and I, this is how my, my mind works. I would have written this the same way twice. Those kings were the fallen angels. The watchers had asked Enoch to be an advocate on their behalf, though Yahuwah wasn't having it. That's just a side note. The hope was that Methuselah could bring redemption, which might have happened had they not tired of righteous living and erred in wickedness again. You get what's happening here? If you, if you read Enoch, the watchers asked Enoch to be an advocate for them, and Yahuwah's like, nah, not going to have it. Enoch goes up to heaven, and they're like, okay, son of Enoch, can you be our advocate? And he was. And they could have repented, and they didn't. The watchers, they didn't repent. Their sin included thievery, and among many sins, and look at what it resulted in, droughts and famine. Despite the little food that was produced, the sons of men refused to turn from their evil ways. Chemtrails. We're on page 21 if you need caught up. Chemtrails. I'm not sure what the people in the days of Noah dealt with, but chemtrails, as you well know, are a staple of the short season, though I don't recall seeing them in my juvenile years. My childhood consisted of big, puffy, animal-shaped clouds rather than the silverish haze which chemtrails provide today. For decades, we couldn't get the average person to look up and admit the skies above them had changed into something sickly-looking. But even the official narrative has come out now and admitted to their new reality. Will the conspiracy theorist or the connect-the-dot specialist be recognized for his observations? No, he will not. The government refers to it as geoengineering, which is just another way of saying they're in the business of weather modification. And why do you figure that is? The fact that we are being poisoned is obvious. What they are doing, however, derives in the title of their scheme. Knowing what we do now, that condensation derives from the heavens, if you take those you know, books as any kind of authority, and that evaporation is dependent upon the worship of the righteous, it only makes sense that they would attempt to modify the weather if it's a continued rebellion against Yahuwah that they're after. And we're speaking here about the short season, which they most certainly are. They're in rebellion. They are attempting to choose the blessing rather than the curse, but without the Most High Elohim as their source. There is aluminum oxide in chemtrails, but then consider the short list of what else is being dropped on us. Uh, I'm going to mispronounce some of these, and you can read them right here. Radioactive uh, cesium, radioactive thorium, um, arsenic, lead, mercury, uh, strontium, things I can't pronounce. Anything you can't pronounce, you know, is bad. Uh, cadmium, uh, cesium, uranium, I can pronounce that one, barium, aluminum oxide, polymer fibers, and bacteria. If uh, you see any of that on labels and food, just put it back on the shelf. 
if what I suspect of their modification scheme is accurate, then geoengineering is cyclical in that our spiritual antennae are being affected by the poison. The toxins raining down upon us renders our pineal gland helpless. Some more than others, perhaps. That is my conclusion at any rate. The sum of this equation means less worship, not to mention the thinning of perceived spiritual realities, which then entails an insufficient surplus in the heavens, thereby justifying more intervention on the part of our controllers. There's some great liberal government right there. The Black Plague. We're on page 23 if you need caught up. The Black Plague was the big one, the main course to the appetizer. I have already shown you the Great Famine of 1315, but that one paled in comparison with the Black Death, which to this day is still regarded as the most fatal pandemic and recorded his story. Beginning in 1346, the Black swept through Western Eurasia and North Africa, and within a few short years, anywhere from 75 to 200 million people fell in its wake. And I understand these are official numbers. That's an estimated 30 to 60% of the European population, as well as about one-third of the Middle East, just gone within a couple years, dead. According to these same appraisals, the death might have reduced the known world population from 475 million to something closer resembling 350 or 375 million, and in only a few short years. It would take Europe another two centuries to regain their depleted numbers. We are told fleas are the cause of man's woe this time around, and I don't buy it. Yes, this little guy right here. The bubonic plague, as it is known, is claimed to have been a type of infection caused by the uh, Yersinia pestis bacterium. The mainstream narrative has us thinking that an invading army of fleas, which are said to normally live on rats, suddenly became infected with the dangerous bacteria. When, that, when the rat host died, the infected fleas jumped ship and landed on their human victims. Right. I am not making any of this up, by the way. They even have a classification for this type of animal encounter. It's referred to as a zoonotic disease. I decided to show an illustration of what they're proposing so that none of my readers are lost in confusion. There are two arrows pointing from the rat to the flea and then to the person. So you don't get lost. Seems legit. There are so many flaws to the fleas on the backs of rat theory that I don't even know where to begin. How about with the dead rats, for starters? Where are the dead rats? Tell me. I want to know. There are no 14th century records referring to a vast horde of dead rats. You'd think there would be. The rats are a later invention of the germ theory people, uh, post-mud flood, all hoping to criminalize the Middle Ages and make them dark, if you get my drift. Equally problematic is the record-breaking speed by which these mysterious and unreported rats spread across the land. Were they wearing pump-up sneakers? It is quite remarkable how they managed the Napoleonic-like march to England and yet completely bypassed the cities of Milan, Liège, and Nuremberg. Will the real Pied Piper please stand up? What's more, nobody can seem to explain how the fleas were completely unaffected by the disease-causing bacteria 
by which they are claimed to have carried. The total lack of rat, uh, let me say that again, the total lack of rats evidence is so evident that some have posited a theory involving fleas on the back of gerbils. No, I am not making this up. I wish I were, but this is the official narrative we're dealing with. Got to keep a careful lookout for those gerbil invasions in the, uh, in the pantry and under the floorboards because you never really know. Especially odd in all of this is the total lack of native gerbils to England. They must have swum across the English Channel, but then escaped through the deportation office before the zoologist and the wildlife biologist could find out about their visit. It doesn't even matter, though. An army of militia jackrabbits would be just as believable because bacteria, viruses, parasites, as well as fungi are not pathogens and do not cause human infectious diseases. We'll see if I can get this past the sensors. Therefore, they cannot be the casual agents of infectious diseases of animals. Before I tell you what I think probably happened to the people of the plague, I will remind you of another similar incident in his story, which will help with the why question. Complaint. This is, of course, a spinoff to the Seraphim paper, and in it, I showed you that the serpents in the wilderness were none other than spiritual entities. Seraphim, naturally. And in fact, some translations are just straight up saying that now, that they were seraphim angels. Not repeating that information here. In any ways, the translators of the incoming text have already thought to reveal the seraph connection. It is the actual incident which needs highlighting. So this comes from um, uh, Bimidbar, or Numbers, tw chapter 21. After they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom, and the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way, and the people spoke against Elohim, don't do that, and against Moshe, don't do that. A lot of Christians speak against both of them today, well, particularly Moshe. Wherefore have, ye brought, wherefore have ye brought us up out of Mitzrayim to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our souls loathe this light bread. They're speaking about the manna. And Yahuwah sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Yashril died. Therefore the people came to Moshe and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against Yahuwah and against you. Pray unto El Yahuwah that he take away the serpents from us. And Moshe prayed for the people, and Yahuwah said unto Moshe, Make you a seraph. And put it upon a banner, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is snake-bitten shall look and live. That is so interesting. Nobody depicts a seraphim angel on a pole. And Moshe made a serpent of brass, the seraph, and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Yasharel's groans were directed towards the same two suspects, Moshe and Yahuwah Elohim. Very little has changed in the Christian church today, it seems. Whereas their hatred was pitted against the manna, which rained down upon them from heaven. Tell me if you disagree, but that is a portrait of the state of humanity, if ever I've seen one. Utter contempt towards the father of Ruachoth and his set-apart ways. And in terms of Messiah's thousand-year reign, I have already shown you how there were no bathrooms in the Millennial Kingdom. And furthermore, at least not from the... Uh, the uh, resurrected, and furthermore, that it had to do with an ample supply of manna. Not repeating that information either. 
We are told all the time about the unsanitary conditions during the Dark Ages. Well, the waterways wouldn't have been contaminated with a mixture of the number two formula had the people refused to listen to the rebels. When thinking about how hand sanitizer wasn't invented yet, which is a poison, by the way, hand sanitizer, sinners are just remembering how horrible Yahusha's shalom on earth was for them when freeing themselves from the Torah. Hopefully, the stomach cramps and the diarrhea were worth it. The plague apparently produced a group of people who demonstrated their religious fervor by vigorously whipping themselves in public displays of penance, and they were known as flagellants. Flagellants wanted everyone else to know how righteous they were on a 1 to 10 scale. I'm guessing they've already received the reward then. I was able to track down one such flagellants parade in a old illustration, and it is somewhat ironic, don't you think? They have a bronze-looking pole, though that is an idol image upon it. Uh, Jesus Christ is my best guess. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that's a direct violation of the first commandment. There are ten of them written upon tablets of stone, and now I'm wondering how many of the others they're taking seriously if the very first one on the list is so offhandedly violated. Did they even take the time to read, read the instructions manual? There are 1,613 others. Can't say they're repenting of their sins either when they are going about boasting of their man-made traditions. What's worse is that they're actively crucifying Mashiach all over again, or else why would they think to nail him to a tree? They're inciting the ongoing suffering of the king of the kingdom so that they needn't have to. That's sick. Speaking of which, I will go ahead and call out pure evil whenever I see it. The arrogance is through the roof with these flagellants. But that is a parade arising from the Dark Ages for you. Immediately following Korah's rebellion against Moshe and the Torah in uh, Bimidbar 16, that's Numbers, comes another plague event which, prece which precedes the serpent episode and yet plays into the current scenario. Many of the people begin protesting against the holiness of Yahuwah, a familiar scene in his story, and they are promptly disposed of. Here's the account. And we talked about, I talked about this uh, with Paul in Romans, uh, mentioning wherever there's the Torah, like at Sinai, people rebel. Number 17. But on the morrow, all the assembly of the children of Yashorah murmured against Moshe and against Aaron, saying, Ye have killed the people of Yahuwah. And it and it came to pass, when the assembly was gathered against Moshe and against Aaron, that they looked toward the tabernacle of the assembly, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of Yahuwah appeared. And Moshe and Aaron came before the tabernacle of the assembly. And Yahuwah spoke unto Moshe, saying, Get you up from among this assembly, that I may consume them, as in a moment. Sounds pretty serious. And they fell upon their faces. And Moshe said unto El Aaron, Take a censer and put fire therein from off the altar and put on incense and go quickly into the assembly and make an atonement for them. For there is wrath gone out from Yahuwah. The plague is begun. And Aaron took as Moshe commanded and ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague was begun among the people. And he put on incense and made an atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living and the plague was stayed. Now they that died in the plague were 14,700. How quickly do you think that happened? Besides, beside them that died about the manner of Korah. 
And Aaron returned unto Moshe and to the door of the tabernacle of the community, and the plague was stayed. Numbers 17, 41 through 50. The plague of number 17 is not describing the spread of germs. No way, no how. Viruses don't produce energy. Viruses don't consume energy. A virus is a dead thing and is only as capable of reproducing as a rock would, which is to say it cannot. Viruses have never been photographed, and so, for all my germ theory subscribers out there, at least be honest with the fact that your entire world is a cartoon. The word virus comes from the Latin virus, and it means poison. Even Reuters' fact-checking article won't argue against that one. Busted. I, drop a, I dropped a link uh, right there so that you can follow along with their logic. They admit that virus was the word once used for poison in the Middle Ages, hmm, but then attempt to claim that it is archaic, and I quote, uh, but they say here, the modern use of the word refers to sub-microscopic infectious agents that are capable of growth and multiplication only in living cells. Is this another example of how the science changes? In actuality, the Ministry of Truth is slapping you with a dose of reality, but then demanding that you deny it. Classic propaganda tactic on the part of our controllers. Supposing for a minute that there was a Walgreens around the corner in the wilderness, complete with PCR tests and the witch's coven, or, um, I'm sorry, pharmacy, and Moshe and Aaron were capable of sampling the presence of viruses among the dead. Still not the cause, though. Blaming viruses on human disease is like fingering firefighters is the reason for why there are fires, when in fact, bodies need to detox, or you might even say expel the, the poisons, the virus, the poisons, from within them. But even if they did duplicate, viruses don't spread that fast. Something like 14,700 people killed over within minutes, likely telling us there were toxic vapors afloat. Sure, angels of death may have been on the warpath, but what was their weapon of choice? An enemy flank is most evident in Aaron um, having, or let me say that, an enemy flank is most evident in the fact that Aaron uh, uh, stood between the living and those who'd already fallen. I'm already, I'm reading nothing here about leading the rat and the flea army away with a piper's flute. You will laugh at the mention of comments as a plausible culprit for the Black Plague, but the ancients thought comets no laughing matter, and I am inclined to respect their opinions over your own, certainly more than the CDC's. According to Sir David Brewster and the Edinburgh Encyclopedia of 1832, the plague, which is the topic of the hour, arose in the wake of a comet, which appeared between August and October of 1347. In the Theatrum Cometicum of 1668, Stanislaw Lubienietz said the same. Uh, said said the same. Said comet comet heralded pestilence from Asia all the way to Britain, which lasted for three years, and death carried away a great many. End quote. But then there is the Englishman, a guy named Betty or Bede. Though he is known as St. Bede, the Venerable Bede, or Bede the Venerable, is considered one of the greatest teachers and writers of the early Middle Ages, even among historians today, like this, of course, going with official history, and look what he had to say about comets. 
Stars with flames like hair. They are born suddenly, portending a change of royal power, or plagues, or wars, or winds, or heat. That quip, com- that quip comes from chapter 25 of his scientific treatise, the Natura Rerum, which is translated on the nature of things, in case you were wondering. Look it up. The book, that is. I wasn't kidding when making mention of the respect which modern historians shower him with. I took the marker out on two of his five possible explanations because they are both likely contenders for this particular incident. There was a comet in 1347, and it very well may have signaled a change of royal power on top of the ensuing plague. The entire episode plays like a reset event. Mike Bally in another, uh, is another name to look out for. In his book, New Light on the Black Death, the Cosmic Connection, I show a picture of the, uh, the cover of one of the prints there. Bally demonstrated an unusual high level of uh, ammonium which has been discovered from the examination of ice core data, all of which coincides with the same time period. Uh, Here's what he had to say. There really is enough information about comets, earthquakes, and ammonium to permit the quite serious suggestion that the Black Plague was due to an impact by comet debris on the 25th of January, 1348, as witnessed by the major earthquake on that day. Okay, that's the other thing I had forgotten to mention, the earthquake. There was actually a series of earthquakes before and afterwards, all of which gave the apple tree a good shaking, but the January 25th earthquake was the big one. Bally further explains, Apart from ammonium, it is now known that a range of unpleasant, toxic, and evil-smelling chemicals, including hydrogen sulfide and carbon uh, disulfide, have been detected in recent comets. What Bally appears to be saying is that uh, B, the venerable, was a connect-the-dots specialist when it comes to comets and the plague. Ammonia is a strong, colorless gas, and depending upon one's exposure, a deadly poison. The presence of evil-smelling chemicals would certainly explain the documented reports regarding the corruption of the atmosphere. The toxicity would also explain how these comets uh, derived these comet-derived chemicals cause severe respiration problems and rapid death from asphyxiation. And then there is the description of the 14th century given to us by Edward Bertio, in which he states, In 1337, four millions of people perished by famine in China in the neighborhood of Qiang alone. Floods, famine, and earthquakes were frequent both in Asia and Europe. In Cyprus, a pestiferous wind spread a poisonous odor before an earthquake shook the island to its foundations, and many of the inhabitants fell down suddenly and expired in dreadful agonies after inhaling the noxious gases. German chemists state that a thick, stinking mist advanced from the east and spread over Italy in thousands of places, and vast chasms opened in the earth which exhaled the most noxious vapors. Why don't we hear more about this in, in history class? This is from the origin and growth of the healing art. Did you get all of that? A pestiferous wind spreading a poisonous odor before an earthquake rocked Cyprus to its foundations, followed by many people falling down suddenly, expiring in agony after inhaling noxious gases. 
I'm not seeing anything in there about a militant supply uh, or fleas, rats, and the Pied Piper to lead them. The conditions being described by Bertio can be explained by comets, comet debris, and earthquakes. What is this I see? I spy two comets streaking across the sky. There is a two-headed calf in the foreground, which is only a little strange. Try not to be distracted by it, though. And, or you can be as distracted as you want. Entire cities in the background are crumbling, probably due to an earthquake. Children are rolling over as though death is having its way with them. And if I'm not mistaken, that's blood in the raindrops. What in the world is happening? We are told it is a description of what happened in 1456 when Halley's Comet rolled around. From the looks of it, we've got another judgment event to reckon with. You will tell me there were no photographs in 1456, and the artists were taking liberties. Well then, look at how Thomas Short described the events. In France, uh, quote, in France, we was seen the terrible comet called Negra. In December, appeared over Avignon a pillar of fire. There were many great earthquakes, tempests, thunders, and lightnings, and thousands of people were swallowed up. The course of rivers were stopped. Some chasms of the earth set forth blood, as if that's not a little suspicious. Terrible showers of hail, each stone weighing one pound to eight pounds. Abortions in all countries. In Germany, it rained blood. And in France, blood gushed out of the graves of the dead. And stained the rivers crimson. Comets, meteors, fire beams, uh, coruscations in the air, mock suns. Well, that's interesting. The heavens on fire. Why has this never been made into a movie? You get the idea. The earth was swallowing people up, whereas elsewhere graves were vomiting blood. Dying the rivers crimson. Typical day-to-day -day stuff. The weather report called on a downpour of blood in Germany. There were comets, meteors, fire beams, what appears to be multiple suns, witness at once, nothing to see there. And even the heavens were on fire. From all that has been described for us, there was an apocalyptic event in the mid-1400s, and nobody thought to tell us about it. Still not seeing anything about cowboy fleas saddling up for a cattle drive with the rats, though. Some of you may be thinking the timeline is off by nearly a millennium, and what we're really looking at is an earlier event. That may be. I'm certainly open to that suggestion, though I am thinking the Black Plague is a repeated event. Mile markers to rebellion and judgments. A set of bookends to the kingdom, really. And in both instances, comets are to blame like clockwork. 536 is the year when a comet is said to have hit the Earth, covering the heavens with its atmospheric dust. I had said earlier that Satan is confined to geological columns. Actually, I don't know if I did say that earlier. Maybe I cut that part out. But this is important to know, uh, that Satan is confined to geological columns, and this is one such example. Uh, so what I mean by that is, like, you, you cut open a tree, and it's going to have so many rings based on the age. Uh, you, you, can't, you can only go so far with a lie about that. You can count up the rings and go, this tree is this old. So there are there are types of columns out there. I talked about the the ice and other things that people can go and measure and go. In a way, I feel like Satan in his lies, he's got to work with this, right? He can't be caught off guard. He can't be, you know, it's it's got to line up with the columns. 
I had said earlier that Satan is confined to geological columns, and this is one such example. Greenland ice cores will once again show high levels of dust dating to that period, not all of which is terrestrial. Many suspect the uptick of atmospheric obstruction incited a radical cool-down. Drought and famine followed, though it is 542 when the plague of Justinian devastated the capital city of Constantinople. This is all according to the official narrative, by the way. The plague, which is named after the last emperor of the ancient world, Justinian the Great, wreaked such havoc upon the Western world that his citizens are said to be the last remnants of Roman civilization. The plague was none other than the welcoming mat for the Dark Ages. So here we have our bookends, 500 and about 1500. Uh, all right, so we are on moving on now. The next part I want to talk about tonight is the Shroud of Turin and the Last Templar. I am really excited to talk about this, and I hope you guys enjoy this. Hopefully you're all still with me tonight, having a good time. The mistake that I may, had made a few years ago was in claiming the image of the man in the Shroud was most certainly Molay's, the Last Grand uh, Templar when in fact it is not. All indications point to the most obvious candidate, Yahusha Hamashiach. And so I will take the time now to correct a former misstep. My readers and my listeners as well will undoubtedly be divided on this one. Some of you will say it's a graven image and Yahusha would never have allowed for it. And still there are a few others who will invoke Yeshayahu 53, claiming that the man within is way too good looking. I've, <laughs> I've seen women claim that one. The reason why I am kicking myself is because I knew better then and had already put hours of legwork into shroud research, at least two decades worth, but was apparently exhibiting a bit of an overreach with the hoax issue. Uh, back in the year, I think it was 2000, I even went to a seminar on the shroud uh, from one of the, the, the main shroud researchers. I uh, gave an excellent presentation for like three hours on it. Jack de Molay, in case you have forgotten, already was the 23rd and final Grand Master of the Templars. These same Templars were said to have kept a white linen shroud in order to wrap their candidates for senior membership. The idea is that they might undergo a ritual, ritualized death and resurrection of their own. To this very day, Freemasons do the same. And so my conclusion at the time involved the last Grand Master directing our attention to one of the greatest mysteries of all the art of the, the hieroglyph, but also that we'd been staring at the Holy Grail all along, the Holy Grail in this instant being the axiom, know thyself, the divine within. Nothing about the narrative led me to believe that Malay and the members of his order were by necess necessity tortured or killed. Thousands of Templars were quite easily rearranged on the European continent, given prominent desk jobs, probably as governors or bankers. Others were simply assembled into the Order of Christ. From beginning to end, Friday the 13th screened of a psychodramatic exercise intended for the alchemical transformation of the soul. This all still may be true. Uh, certainly the alchemical transformation part on, on the part of our controllers. The only thing I am backing up for is my stance on the Shroud, as well as the Templars, uh, you know, being perhaps legitimate uh, priest of the kingdom. It was while reading up on the 1978 STIRP investigation, which first set me off the deep end, calling it a hoax. STIRP is an acronym for Shroud of Turin Research Project. Uh, follow this link, will you? 
Wiki lists the occupation of everyone who participated in the Vatican-sponsored investigation, and they're nearly all from Los Alamos, home of the Manhattan Project, if you need caught up on your wartime propaganda and hoax history. You might as well plant a Buzz Aldrin moon flag on the fact that the others derive from Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Actually, I hope you purchase them in bulk. Because the number of researchers in 1978 was precisely 33 in number. Wink, wink. Don Lynn was involved. Look him up. He was head of imaging on Voyager, Viking, Mariner, and Galileo. Tell me again why NASA was involved. Calling it a fraud last time, albeit a masterful one, was the flip-flop. But can you blame me? Sterp was straight-up shady. Sometimes our controllers invent the narrative. Other times, they simply control it. Separating the two is the difficulty I am having. And so the shroud has once again been re-examined on, on my part. But then again, so has the identity, identity of the Templars. And I'm thinking now their disappearance wasn't a hoax. It was damage control. Freemasonry is busily dangling a big, fat, juicy carrot for our conspiratorial cravings. In this case, case, claiming to have descended from the Templars. It's all too easy. I made a rookie mistake rather than recognizing controlled opposition wherever it crops up. The earliest record of the Shroud of Turin as we know it today dates from either 1353 or 1357. Historical records seem to indicate that a shroud bearing an image of a crucified man was deposited in a newly built chapel within the small town of Lyry, France. Its owner was the famed French knight, Geoffrey uh, de Charny, but he died at the Battle of Poitiers in 1356, only a year or two after the shroud was uh, perhaps claimed. How the shroud landed into his care is anybody's best guess. Some have claimed he acquired it as a gift from Humbert II after he participated in the Battle of Smyrna. Others suspect it was sent to French King Louis IX in 1238 by the Latin Emperor of Constantinople, along with other Christian relics, all of which was purposed for safekeeping after Constantinople was sacked during the Fourth Crusade. The last claim does hold some merit, seeing as how microparticles of gold vacuumed up at various times from the shroud have been analyzed and compared with coins minted in, in the Byzantine Empire between the 7th and 12th centuries. The most probable explanation, however, assigns Geoffrey D. Charney as a devoutly religious member of the Knights Templar. In their sudden exodus from the land, it appears as though the Templars left precious cargo behind, or perhaps it was all by design, and somehow it landed in Charney's hands. Its second certain record dates to 1390, when Bishop Pierre de Ar uh, Arcus declared the shroud to be a forgery, and that's what most people go with. Well, this guy declared it in 1390 to be a forgery, so that must be it. In the same letter written to anti-pope Clement the, the Seventh, that's a fun title to be the anti-pope, he furthermore claimed to have spoken with the artist responsible for making it. Who is this mystery artist? We are never told. And by the way, the shroud being put on display in the decade following the plague only to be dismissed as a forgery by an obvious controller, screams of a recent reset event. I would direct your attention to the world's fairs in the wake of the mud flood. This is like that. We are expected to believe the shroud was stashed away 
and Yosef of Arimathea's garage for 1,300 years and then put on display once discovered when in fact a great many records have been scrubbed. I am thinking that it may have been left behind during the aforementioned disappearing act by the Templars. Our controllers do toss us a bone or two, though. Robert D. Clary, a knight of the Fourth Crusade, reported seeing the shroud in Constantine Noble. And here is his report. He says, among these, there was a church called St. Mary of the Blachernay, um, where the shroud was kept in which our Lord was wrapped. Every Friday, it was elevated um, all straight so that it was possible to easily see the image of our Adonai. St. Mary of the, uh, yes, Blachernay, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, was destroyed during the sacking of the city. Though, before that could happen, the shroud was accounted for. I will once again remind you that, th that it is official history which I am attempting to work with, and that is suspect. The problem I am having is with the presence of the shroud in a capital city of the Eastern Empire. A capital city implies far more than mums the word. If the shroud were repeatedly put on display every Friday from the capital city of the world and for a rotunda of witnesses, then you'd think the gossip columns would have something to say on the subject. That's not what we are given, though. Only a traveling knight found it worth documenting, and isn't that strange? Which is why I'm stating the records have been either, either been doctored or altogether scrubbed and rewritten, with much of what remains being a counterfeit. See what I mean? We're on page 39 if you need caught up. There are far too many portraits of Yehusha HaMashiach, which just so happens to resemble the image of the human figure in the Shroud of Turin to be a coincidence. Mm-hmm. That is the face of the man in the Shroud. No question about it. Perhaps you are failing to see a resemblance. You will. The split beard is the dead giveaway, though I have come prepared with other examples. Here is another portrait supposedly dating to the 7th century. It can be found in the catacombs of Rome and contains several familiar features. I'm detecting one eyebrow lifted higher than the other. Also, one nostril is slightly larger. Those are shroud features. Glance back and forth between them and tell me I'm wrong. Take all the time you need. And then we see here on page, uh, what are we on, 40? On the left is the very popular portrait of the Pantocrator Jesus. The word Pantocrator literally means ruler of all, though it is usually translated as almighty or all-powerful. There are many Pantocrator images of you who should be found, uh, supposed remnants of the Byzantine-era world, though this one in particular derives from St. Catherine's Monastery in Egypt and is dated to the 6th century. Longtime Shroud researcher Alan Wanger can be seen standing on the right. Try not to fall asleep at this part. While using the Polaroid image overlay technique, which he developed, uh, probably, I think, back in the 70s, 80s, over 250 points of similarity were observed between the Pantocrator portrait and the Shroud. And that's no coincidence. You didn't believe me, did you? You thought I was making comparisons where they don't belong. That may be, but I'm not through quite yet. Take another look at the, at the face in the shroud. Study it long and hard. In a moment, you will turn the page. When you do, it is only denial which will get the better of you. And whoop, there it is. That there would be the uh, Trimesis coin. 
It is said to have been minted during the reign of Justinian II between the years 692 uh, and uh, 265. Maybe maybe that's a typo. That probably that would probably be 765, and has 188 points of congruence within the shroud face. Once is a coincidence. Twice, thrice, or four times is a pattern. Claiming that only neophyte artists were in the know is one thing, but then hanging his portrait up at St. Catherine's, one of the leading pilgrimage sites in the world, is another entirely. Not forgetting the people at the Mint Factory. That's the giveaway. You don't simply commemorate the face of a man from the shroud onto the monopoly money without alerting a normie or two. It just goes to show that the Shroud was known before the Vanishing Act of the Templars, and our controllers don't want you or anybody else to know about it. They can scrub the history books, but the truth always comes out in the end. I just found this one in the Google search engine. It's Panto Crater Jesus in a police lineup. He's matched side to side and top to bottom with the man in the Shroud. And looky looky, we have a match. Many red pill dealers go around back alleyways of the internet claiming the likeness of Jesus is based upon Caesar Borgia. Well then, either Yahusha had a doppelganger or we are confronted with another stunning turn of events. Yahusha's portrait isn't based upon Caesar uh, Borgia. No, Caesar Borgia is based upon Yahusha. Also, if I'm not mistaken, the person in the background is sporting a tail. Thank you, one of my readers, uh, for pointing that out. What sort of bestial abomination is going on, and is Caesar Borgia, Borgia okay with the proceedings? Well, there is something for the books. Everyone is so eager to finger Borgia as Jesus that nobody took the magnifying glass out on Monkey Boy. History is strange, ain't it? I happen to like it that way. There are, of course, straight-up depictions of the Shroud in books of antiquity. Every illustration we are told derives from artist inspiration after 1355, and I'll let that slide. If anything, the scarce documentation of an actual shroud before Charnay, when compared with Pantocrator Jesus and Byzantine currency, all of which depict the face of the man within the shroud, only goes to show the length by which our controllers will go to to tell their version of the story according to their timetable. FYI, I did manage to locate one illustration which is dated to an earlier century and may indeed be employing the Shroud for inspiration. Now pay attention to this part. It is a single page in the Prey Codex, also known as the Prey Manuscript, named after its discoverer, uh, is that Georgi Prey. The Codex is dated to somewhere between 1192 to 1195 making it 70 years earlier than the oldest carbon dating of the Shroud. It tells us something. Some evidence slipped through our controller's fingertips. I'm not so certain it was supposed to be found. Notice some points of correlation. Yahusha is shown naked and with his arms crossed over the pelvis. That's a Shroud trait. Another giveaway is his missing thumb. I'm only counting four fingers on each hand. There is also a familiar bloodstain on his forehead. The most interesting aspect, however, is the burial cloth itself. I will give more specifics on the Shroud's craftsmanship in a little while. For now, all you need to know 
is that the shroud was manufactured with a distinctive V-shaped weaving, which gives a contrary squiggly or cross-shaped pattern depicted, uh, depending upon which side of the cloth you're studying. Take a mental note of the burn marks. I'll say this again for those of you nodding off. In the Prey Codex, the artist depicted burn holes throughout the fabric. It's the little details. Better yet, plant a Buzz Aldrin moon flag on that one, because something about the timeline isn't sitting quite right. I'm not going to even read this little... Uh, I started pasting, cutting out and pasting these Wikipedia quotes, because I started noticing that I was writing articles on this, and I would go back and they would change the whole article. And they would make me out to be like a lunatic, like I'm just making this stuff up. So I had to start dropping these. And I guess it would take the Mandela effect to change this stuff. Starting with the 15th century, Wikipedia tells us the history of the shroud is well recorded. We shall have to see about that. In 1453, Geoffrey uh, de Charney's granddaughter, Margaret de Charney, gifted the shroud to the House of Savoy at Chambery. Well, look at what happens next. We are then told it was damaged by fire and water in 1532, as if that's not suspicious. It was afterwards moved to the new uh, Savoyard capital of Turin in 1578, where it remains to this day. But wait! The Prey Codex already depicts the shroud with burn marks, and that was published in the whereabouts of 1195. Do the math on that. The fire story occurs 337 years too late. Busted. I'm thinking our controllers need a fire hoax to explain the pre-existent marks, thereby causing the forgery story to stick the landing. And by the way, I have I have gone to other websites where they're showing that artwork that I showed you and saying they're pointing out the burn marks and saying, see, that's proof it's the shroud. And they don't even like there's a cognitive dissonance. They don't even um see that the the the, the fire story that is given to us is then in question. They don't even question it. And that's, you know, that's what cognitive dissonance does to people. Supposing for a moment that the shroud is a medieval forgery and the man within is none other than Jack de Molay. Their facial features and build aren't so dissimilar if you can get past Molay's bald head or the likelihood that his entire port portrait was later imagined. I can't seem to get a fix on Malay's height. We are told he was tall, though. The man in the... Which is uh, my height, 5'11", and superimposing for his generation. Assuming Malay is a match, and these are the conclusions we're going with, then the Shroud would have to be one of the greatest forgeries of all time, resplendent with a long-lost Tartarian tech, because the image within the cloth cannot be replicated to this very day. And I'm about to get into why. Notice what I just said, or what I just did. I conjured the T word, Tartaria. I certainly wasn't attempting to be clever when, it, when clumping it in with numerous other art pieces of lost his story. We have those. The chisel and the hammer make for poor explanations with many of Renaissance masterpieces. In time, I will show you what I mean. But that is not to say that they cannot be replicated using modern technology. I'm, I'm talking about, you know, statues and other art pieces, but not the shroud. Those can be replicated. This cannot. It is quite different with the shroud. The shroud may prove to be the greatest document because it cannot be replicated. And they tried. When making a statement such as that one, I'm being specific and direct. A replica has yet to be accomplished by anyone. 
oh, the forgery claimers have mostly, most certainly tried their hand at a cloth of their own, but only with the success of Willie E. Coyote on the hot desert pavements. The problem they're running into is that the image on the shroud wasn't imprinted by contact. The blood is most certainly from his body. That was put there by contact. The image is something entirely different. A piece of cloth like the shroud should produce a uh, should produce a 2D object because it's flat. That's not what we have, though. The shroud is somehow in between a picture and a statue. Encoded on the very uh, fibrils of the cloth is what appears to be 3D information about the shape of the body which it enveloped, of which we can learn much. That is why it can be said the shroud is the most unique piece of cloth on this flat, motionless realm, having no equal. Do recall that a comparison was already made between the moon and the shroud in my head, hidden wilderness paper. The moon is a negative image, the result of a snapshot in a precise moment of his story, just as the shroud is a negative in a document to a precise instance. I had also made the claim that the moon is the result of a focused electromagnetic phenomenon called plasma, and that I suspect they were both created in the exact same manner. I, I said at that time that the shroud was as well. Light that pipe and smoke it, why don't you? This is precisely why the shroud has never been duplicated. Like, you can't duplicate the moon. You can't just bury a murder victim in a shroud for a few days and then instruct the divine light to burst forth via resurrection so as to complete the artwork. It doesn't work like that. Certainly not for mortals at any rate. The forger went all out on this one. There have been as many as 370 wounds counted on the front of the victim's body, with well over 600 estimated in total. The torture device has even been identified as a Roman flagrum. Uh, now, I, I recall like 23 years ago from that, uh, uh, that seminar I attended that the man who spoke also said that they determined that one of the, the, one of the men who held the whip was left-handed. I don't know how they came to that conclusion. I have yet to be able to find any... Uh, quote on that, I've looked that up and nobody seems to be saying that, but the man who presented that told me that 23 years ago, so I'm just throwing that out there. That they can pick up a lot of information on this. The typical whip was com com comprised of a handle to which two, maybe three throngs of rope or leather were tied and tipped with small, sharp pieces of wood, bone, or metal. This one in particular was of the three-thronged variety, complete with lead weights shaped like dumbbells, uh, the killer spared no expense. The victim was stripped naked and then tied up to a pole while his tormentors had their way with him. Each lash lasted but a second, though the sharp ends of the, the flagrum would have cut into his skin and perhaps even latched onto something of value before being ripped out again, causing extremely serious internal lesions. The energy of each blow would have been absorbed within microseconds, causing his entire body to recoil with the excruciating electrifying sensation for several seconds, if not minutes, before his tormentor went at him again and again and again. The entire episode was overkill. To say he was sunburned and dehydrated and that his knees were crushed under the weight of the crucifixion device which he carried do no doubt to a sudden fall on the journey is nothing compared to the greater conclusion. And all those things I just mentioned were true. They, they found those things out. But the man in the shroud was already a walking dead man. At the end of the scourging, he was going to die. 
Had the mob shown him mercy and chose a bed rather than a tree to hang him from, he would have been dead within several short hours anyways. There was no going back. He had already lost liters of blood. His kidneys had stopped functioning. His guts were nearly exposed and hanging out. That's some top-notch forgery, if I do say so myself. The person within the shroud wasn't simply crucified. No, the Romans didn't crucify before a crucifixion. I want you to really think about this here. Because even the people who are studying this are stumped. They're like, the man in this, this shroud, the Romans didn't uh, crucify someone before they crucified them. That didn't happen, according to our records. He was brutalized and murdered many times over, telling us how the temple controllers really felt about the son of Elohim. Yes, I just went there. In another paper, a presentation I gave a couple months ago now, I put Pontius Pilate on trial and showed his innocence. Nearly everyone thinks the Romans are responsible, but the governor of Yehuda washes hands of the entire affair. You don't wash your hands of a judgment only to go through with it moments later, and with far more ferocity than what any other Roman crucifixion would dare imagine, mind you, unless that person were deranged. Look at how surprised he was to learn of Yehusha's death. This comes from the Gospel of Mark. He says, And Pilate marveled if he were already dead. And calling unto him the centurion, he asked him whether he had been any while dead. And when he knew it of the centurion, he gave the body to Yosef. Believe it or not, I have just given you two further clues pertaining to Pilate's innocence. Had Pilate been the one to oversee his crucifixion, then his surprise would be akin to saying Yahusha went out like a chump rather than a champ. That's not what happened, though. The face of the man in the shroud speaks of a suffering servant, but, oh, but he also has a look of shalom on him. This is someone who drank from the cup that was passed to him and did so with dignity, completing the task before him. Mission accomplished. I'm more inclined to think Pilate's surprise teetered upon a reaction of, dang, you people took human mutilation to a whole new level. Is this how you treat your gods? The second proof of Pilate's innocence is in his handing of Yahusha over to Yosef. This well-known fact has been long debated, employed as fuel for accusation against the reliability of the resurrection story even, when in fact the Romans did not allow crucified victims to be buried in an honorable way. They left them on their crucifixion device for several days so that their bodies might bloat in the heat of the sun, eventually exploding before being tossed into a pit. If you've ever seen an animal by the side of the road on a hot July or August day over the course of a week, you know what I'm talking about. Roman, Roman guards would have overseen an operation such as what I've just described rather than the tomb. Pontius Pilate did hand Yahushua over to Yosef for burial, though, speaking once more of his innocence. Even further evidence to the mob mentality can be found with the crown of thorns of which the shroud attests to. The crowd wasn't a carefully um, I'm sorry, the crown was not a carefully crafted garland as we are so often led to believe in Hollywood. It was a literal thorn bush. His controllers shoved a briar patch over his skull so as to work the crowd into its beehive frenzy. Roman guards weren't responsible. Had they done so, it would have been strange indeed for Pilate to respond in the described manner. And this comes from the Gospel of John. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was Yahusha, the uh, Netzeri uh, and king of the Yahudim. The title then read many uh, of the Yahudim. 
For the place where Yahushua was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Everit and Yavani and Latin. Then said the chief priest of the of the Yahudi to Pilate, Write not, and king of the Yahudim. But that he said, I am king of the Yahudim. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. His torturers had given Yahushua a mock coronation, whereas Pilate straight up calls him the king of the Yahudim. The temple controllers didn't like that. Their response identifies who it is that mocked him, whereas Pilate gave him dignity and honor. Explain to me again how a Roman governor crucifies someone on charges that he is a threat to the establishment and, and Caesar, but then pulls a stunt such as what has just been described. Pilate had already given his judgments. Yahushua was innocent. Yes, he handed Yahushua over to the Yahudim to do what they wanted with him, but he was clearly protesting their decision. You will hear all the time about the blood on the shroud being painted on. It's not paint, though. It's blood, real blood. Both pre- and post-mortem blood. Actual human blood which has been shown to be of the AB type. The fact-checkers will scream from a megaphone that it was paint and tell you believe it to be true, but it's simply not so. The image wasn't scorched, rubbed, painted, photographed, as assuredly as it wasn't formed by dyes, chemicals, vapors, uh, nor was it in any way made by the known methods of man. And that's the other thing. The placement of the nail. The forger forsook the artistic renderings of his own day by placing the nails in his wrist and ankles rather than the hands and feet of church paintings. The former description keeps in strict accord with an actual crucifixion. His wrist was secured to the nail and wasn't going anywhere, whereas a nail through the hand would have ripped right off the uh, crossbeam. The darkest bloodstain on the entire shroud derives from the wound on his side. That's a postpartum flow, obviously. It wraps around his backside, forming a puddle there uh, along his uh, spine. I will remind you once again that the bloodstains are a result of contact with the cloth, whereas the image itself derives from a different origin. Well, notice how red the blood is. It is red of a crimson color, and that shouldn't be. I would normally call a hoax on that, and that's one of the reasons most people have. The blood mystery is what has most fact-checkers claiming foul, but they have turned out to be the Karens in the end. At any crime scene, blood quickly becomes brown or even black, and in very little time. That's one of the ways you can see the many hoaxes out there. Not so with the shroud. The blood remains a distinct crimson color. In any other scenario, that would be deemed completely impossible, proving the shroud to be a hoax. The answer, however, has already been known among chemists. Uh, it's uh, bil bilirubin. Bilirubin is a pigment that enters the blood with the breakdown of red cells. Under conditions of great stress or suffering, particularly to the torture which the person in the, in the shroud was forced to endure, and we're talking 24 to 36 hours of torture, his liver would have eventually flooded the bloodstream with the bilirubin enzyme, which I have already described. In that precise moment, his blood would have remained red forever. Are we expected to believe the forger tortured his nude model so that the blood would remain red eternally, simply to fool CSI investigators centuries later? Ridiculous. The other thing about the forger is that he would have had to have chosen a model already in rigor mortis. Some of you may protest, uh, you know, yeah, is this an idol? You know, I'll let you guys decide on that. I'm, I'm not, uh, uh, I am not 
con uh, condoning uh, that. But anyways, look at those locked knees, why don't you? That's a stiffened body. His model would also have been placed in the shroud for no more nor less than 48 to 72 hours. Furthermore, his body didn't see decay. Incredible. And that's, of course, a, a prophecy in Psalm that uh, the anointed one, that the son of Yahuwah, would not see decay. Regarding the actual cloth, it is linen, making it biblical. Its length and width are even in cubits, also biblical, whereas the official narrative has medieval Europe employing a different unit of measurements entirely. Furthermore, there are no medical, I'm sorry, no medieval examples of the three to one uh, herringbone pattern used to make the fabric. The only matches are ancient ones deriving from the Near East. To be more specific, Palestine. Not even Egypt twisted the strands in the direction of the shroud, but I'm not done yet. In 2002, the 16th century backing cloth was removed from the shroud for the first time for a textile expert. Uh, there's the name there, Fleury Limburg. What she discovered on the exposed backside is a stitch so inexplicably rare that it has only been spotted in one other known location, Masada, the Jewish fortress that fell to the Romans in 73 AD. Even more stunning is the dirt found on the shroud, especially surrounding the person's nose, knee, and feet, uh, knees and feet. There is dirt, dirt surrounding Yerushalayim, and it's a match. Not only that, the stone which made up the tombs surrounding Yerushalayim are unique to that city alone, and the shroud includes that feature. And then there is the floral design. The forger would have had to have gone flower picking in the hills surrounding Yerushalayim in the springtime because uh, botanist Avendoam Danen of Jerusalem's Hebrew University has published something like nine books on the flora of the Middle East, one of which includes his findings in the Shroud of Turin. He has a whole book just on the Shroud. Of the hundreds of floral patterns and pollen grains found on the Shroud, half of them can be found in the Middle East or similar areas, but never in Europe. 28 of them are from plants still growing in Israel, with 70% being exclusively found in the areas surrounding Yerushalayim and Jericho, or Jericho. The fact that pollen matches can be traced to Turkey, France, and Italy only affirms its history, including its long tenure in Constantinople, which our controllers don't want us to know about. The coin hypothesis goes all the way back to the 1970s when researchers noted the presence of small bulges on the person's ocular orbit bones, thanks in part to 3D printing. The thought at the time was that these might have been leptons, small, nearly valueless coins, which would have been common in Palestine during Roman times. The critics will claim shroud enthusiasts see whatever they want to see, like a leprechaun in a puffy-shaped cloud or something. But what they really appear to be expressing is their feelings towards their so-called forger. The man in the shroud had pilot-era coins over his eyes, and the artist who painted his image apparently wasn't that clever. Therefore, it must not be true. There is a deductive argument for you. Well, the shroud does tell, and here is what it says. A litus is a curved uh, staff and can be distinctly seen on the disc covering his right eye. Over the left eye, a vase or a cup has been found. Put together, they form something resembling the coin, which is shown um, on this page. Furthermore, the letters YKAI, all capital, have been deciphered upon his eyelids. This is thought to be the visible part of the word Tiberio uh, Kai 
Kapok, or T-I-B-E-R-I-O-Y-K-A-I-C-A-P-O-C, Greek for Tiberius Caesar, the emperor. The most important piece of evidence that I would be remiss to neglect it derives from the actual image on the cloth. You will once again want to recall that the bloodstains and the picture negative, if one can call it that, are two separate things. Without the image, all we would be left with is the blood. There are plenty of bloody clothes, and I highly doubt anybody in Yahusha's entourage would have saved a bloody mess like that if it weren't for the witness of his image. Though I, I will point out that Joseph of Arimathea was recorded as being uh, buried in the same linen garment that he buried Yahusha in that had uh, some blood stains across the chest. Anywhere from 48 to 70 hours into the burial process, the body of the man within emitted a short, intense burst of vacuum ultraviolet radiation, thereby imprinting a perfect photographic negative image. I have read up on the conclusions of these shroud researchers, and what they're saying is nothing short of awe-inspiring. It has been argued by Italian researcher Paleo di Lazzara that the radiation was ultraviolet and that the instantaneous burst exceeds the maximum power released by all ultraviolet sources of light available today. It would also require pulses having durations shorter than one forty billionth of a second. The intensities of these pulses would have to be on the order of several billion watts. His body became mechanically transparent in an instant, emitting light evenly from every three-dimensional point within, thereby imprinting an encoded 3D image on the front and the back of the cloth, as well as an X-ray. This is why the shroud cannot be rep reproduced in any laboratory or art studio in existence. I even found an instance when Yahusha glowed in the exact manner which has been described for us by the shroud researchers. And this comes from the Book of the Nazarene, which we're going through now. The following day, Yahushua took Kepha, Yaakov, and Yochanan, that would be Peter and, uh, and John and James, three of the apostles, to a cave high up on the mountainside where they remained in meditation for three days. On the third day, while seated in the cave, the others saw the whole body of Yahushua exude, exude a light and become radiant, the colors being blue and white. They were astonished at such an inflow of power, for no other body could have contained it. Though manifesting in them also, it was much weaker. The three with Yahusha covered their eyes before the brilliance. And Yochanan said, Master, while the Ruach HaKadosh manifests in us is no more than a faint blue glow, seen only in total darkness, your brilliance is like that of the sun compared with the palest star. Kepha said, it is good for us to have seen this, for now we know how poorly we compare with you. That comes from the book of the Nostrum, chapter 15. Ultraviolet isn't the same as blue, you will tell me, but UV waves aren't exactly visible to the naked eye either. Blue is. Yahushua's disciples could only describe what they were capable of seeing. Being more brilliant than the sun compared with the palest star is saying something. That is while he was living, mind you. There is nothing in the textbooks which would describe how a dead man can accomplish the same task. All in all, I would say the evidence is stacked up in favor of Yahushua HaMashiach. There is certainly more evidence to be had, lots of evidence which I haven't gotten to yet. I simply hadn't intended to get carried away with it all, and yet here we are. 
Well, here's another item for the evidence locker before closing shop for the day. The image of the man is best seen from afar. The closer one gets to the shroud, the more the image becomes blurred, so that all the viewer sees is the rust-colored bloodstains on the cloth. To truly recognize the image, one must stand several feet away. Any closer in the picture on the cloth is lost. This would imply that the forger was working from a distance while splashing on the crimson-colored blood of his tortured victim. Where is the practicality in that? He sure did fool the CSI people, though. And so, understand what I'm saying in all of this. Technology has been lost to us, a great deal of it, in fact. Our controllers prefer it that way. Mostly so that they can play the part of the slave master while getting the credit for reinventing the wheel and other contraptions. Gotta fill their shells with those Pulitzer Prizes, LOL. The Shroud of Turin isn't one of their creations, though. No way, no how. All they can do is place the Shroud in the late Middle Ages so as to arouse the forgery narrative. But it's not even, not even that story checks out. It's all misdirection. All things considered, the Shroud's sudden emergence in his story is where they really screwed up for anyone paying attention. They're hiding not only its true his story, but the manner by which it fell into their hands. It's what they might call in Hollywood nowadays a franchise reboot. I have that hankering feeling that the original story was far superior. Can you blame my cynicism? Speaking of which, have you seen what they built in Turin? Capilla della Sacra Sindone, or Sindoni, or the Chapel of the Holy Shroud, was apparently completed in 1694 for the exclusive purpose of housing the shroud. After the artist had already come forth and admitted to the forgery, we are told the chapel is a Baroque masterpiece, though with all the flourishes I'm detecting some serious MK tech. More stolen his story. But then again, maybe I'm reading too much into this, and the marvelous intricacies at Turin serve no other purpose but to rise above the meaningless cake topper. That must be it. Just another decorative piece in the belongerie of the earth, like the linen cloth contained within it. In 1997, a mysterious fire for which there is still no explanation broke out and nearly destroyed the Shroud of Turin. Nothing to see here, folks. All right, hopefully you're all with me. We're going to be ending in the next 20 minutes. My voice is still hanging on, I think. And uh, I saved this last bit for you uh, closeted Star Wars nerds out there. I purposely did not put this in the beginning, nor will I be advertising this on YouTube land because I don't want to attract uh, the uh, the normies uh, to read this and go, what in the world, and get really angry and, you know, don't want to take the baseball bat to the wasp nest too much because the Star Wars people can get pretty angry. Anyways, this is called The End of the Kingdom, or cross that out, The End of the Republic in the Star Wars prequel trilogy. If you don't know where I'm going with this, you hang with me, you soon will, and you'll see how I'm tying some of these events together. Nerd alert. Half of my readership is shaking their heads right now, completely dumbfounded as to how low I am apparently capable of sinking so as to keep this conversation afloat. Stick around and you just may live to see me scraping the bottom of the barrel, but not today. Confession. Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace was released during my senior year of high school. I'm giving my age. For all you Zoomers out there, this was the 90s. 
streaming a two-minute trailer on the internet entailed two to three hours of download time on a dial-up modem. There were no cell phones, and well, maybe there were some cell phones, but not in my household. And in fact, nobody could call the house or make a call to any other house so long as the internet was being used on the dial-up modem. So imagine me at 3 p.m. every afternoon hogging up the line, and I'm not going to even try to make that sound effect. You're going to have to read that for yourself. Supposing you have no clue what just happened, then you obviously missed the 90s. I'm not explaining it further. Really, you have you had to have been there. That's the uh, sound of a dial-up for all you uh, millennials and Zoomers and young kids out there, children. And anyways, Star Wars does happen to come into this. The story of the prequel trilogy tells of the fall of the Republic and the birth of the Empire, which is to say it mirrors the end of the Millennial Kingdom, making its segue into the short season. It's so obvious. If anything, I'm surprised that I'm the first to put the two and two together. Maybe, maybe somebody else has out there. I just haven't read it. Apologies. Uh, I wasn't seeing it anywhere. Think back to the story given to us. Not seeing it yet. Moments after freeing the boy Anakin Skywalker from slavery on the desert planet of Tantooine, uh, and <laughs> forgive me, I'm going to be using a bunch of nerd uh, names out there, out here. Uh, Qui-Gon Jinn is tracked down and confronted by Darth Maul. Upon arriving to the Jedi Temple on the capital city planet of Coruscant, Qui-Gon reports his encounter to fellow council members. And here's what, he, what, it, what is said. Qui-Gon Jinn says, He had all the lightsaber fighting capabilities and the moves of the Jedi. He's speaking about Darth Maul. Only faster and more aggressive. My only conclusion is that it was a Sith Lord. By which... Uh, Ki-Adi Mundi responds, Impossible! The Sith are extinct! They have been for nearly a millennium! Qui-Gon had never encountered another Sith Lord before. In fact, it appears as though nobody had. Not even the centuries-old Yoda. When Qui-Gon mentions the lightsaber fighting capabilities and Jedi moves of his opponent, uh, Ki-Adi Mundi deems such a prospect an immediate impossibility. And why is that? Because the Sith have been extinct for nearly a millennium. There is your first clue. A millennium is a thousand years. For your next clue, we'll have to jump ahead to Star Wars Episode Two: uh, Attack of the Clones. The scene I am thinking of involves Senator Padme and Governor C.O. Bibble. There are a few other players like Anakin Skywalker and the Queen of Naboo, who at this time is not Padme. They're standing around in the royal palace, none of which matters. Though, now that I'm thinking about it, most of them are seated, but not standing around. And this is what Padme says. If the Senate votes to create an army, I'm sure it's going to push us into a civil war, of which the governor responds, it's unthinkable. There hasn't been a full-scale war since the formation of the Republic. What did we just learn here? There hasn't been a full-scale war since the formation of the Republic. That's imperative information. The war that is being spoken of occurred 1,000 years earlier. I looked it up on the Wikipedia. There was something called the Battle of Rusan, a confrontation between the Jedi and the Sith, the forces of light against the darkness, which decided the fate of the galaxy up until the present moment. The winners of that war obviously were the Jedi. Their victory was such that the Sith, as we have already read, were considered extinct. No Sith, no war. 1,000 years of what? Of peace. Or you could say shalom. 
I probably should have started with the opening crawl. In episode one, we quickly learned that turmoil, turmoil had engulfed the Republic, which, mind you, had been created a thousand years earlier. When the taxation of trade routes uh, routes was in dispute, the Greedy Trade Federation stopped all shipping to the planet of Naboo. Of course, this is in the opening crawl. And so, while the Congress of the Republic endlessly debated this alarming chain of events, the Supreme Chancellor secretly dispatched two Jedi Knights, uh, and is quoted, the guardians of peace and justice in the galaxy. The last bit of information is the important part. Though the Senate had grown complacent and, as we will learn, saturated with corruption, the, the Senate could only be deemed a peaceful one because of the monk-like warriors which were there to protect it. And then Obi-Wan Kenobi says this famous line, For over a thousand generations, the Jedi Knights were the guardians of peace and justice in the Old Republic before the dark times, before the Empire. Now, I'm not going to do an Alec Guinness um, impersonation. One of the more popular quotes derives from the original Star Wars movie. That would be episode four if, you, if you've been living in a cave since the disco era. When telling Luke Skywalker about the arrival of their present dark times, Obi-Wan gives the idea that the Jedi had been guardians of peace and justice in the Old Republic for much longer than a single millennia. I wouldn't happen to know what the length of a generation is in the Star Wars universe. If it is rounded off to four decades, though, then a thousand generations would be 40,000 years. That's a long time to be the guardians of peace and justice. Some would deem this quote to be a contradictory or to be contradictory to the timeline put forth in episode one. But I'm not here to argue that. It seems to me that the Jedi were an ancient religion, just as assuredly as the Sith were an ancient religion, and that the two were in constant conflict with each other, except for the moment when they weren't, until they were again. In between that time was a span of a thousand years. The Sith were deemed extinct because the peace and justice which the Jedi oversaw was testament to that fact. In the closing minutes of Episode 1, the arrival of the Sith was no longer deemed an impossibility. Though Obi-Wan had cut Darth Maul in two, the Sith Lord had first managed to kill Qui-Gon, and so, while standing around at his funeral, uh, which they were cremating him, Mace Windu and Yoda attempt to digest what has transpired, but mostly what it means for their future. The thousand years of peace and justice which they had enjoyed, it seems, had nearly come to an end. And Yoda says, Always two there are, no more, no less, a master and an apprentice, of which Mace Windu says, but which was destroyed, the master or the apprentice. When saying that there are always two Sith, a master and his apprentice, Yoda has come to terms with the fact that their adversaries had managed to survive undetected as occult practitioners, a master of the dark arts and his neophyte. They may have been bound, if that is the right word to use, and therefore incapable of influencing the peace and justice which was enjoyed by a greater society, but they existed nonetheless. I'll have you know that one of the first papers I ever wrote was on the first five completed Star Wars movies. Contrast, uh, episode three hadn't come out yet. Contrasting the worlds between the prequel and the original trilogies. It is a literal paper which may still exist in the attic, and no, I am not climbing up there to dig through the boxes and retrieve it for you. That was 20 years ago now, and anyways, if memory serves me correctly, I can sum it up for you in one single sentence. The locations enjoyed by members of a free society were depicted in the prequel trilogy during the Thousand Years of Peace, whereas a free person in a season of tyranny has no choice but to live in the harsher primitive climates of the original, and I still stand by it. What I didn't understand at the time was how very on point I was. 
The ongoing joke is that every location in the Star Wars universe happens to be one which can be found, already be found here on the Earth. Somebody is prepared to tell me that Naboo is a CG city and cannot be visited. That's not entirely true. It is based primarily upon the Italian Renaissance, the influence of which can still be found, though many have come to know it as the greater Tartarian society. I refer to it, of course, as the thousand-year reign of Mashiach, but we're mostly speaking the same language. A little bit of different. Look at those pillared rotundas, why don't you? So many domes, such symmetry. Copper roofing makes for excellent conductors of free electricity, and in fact, designs of the old world are everywhere to be found. All cake toppers, probably. I'm sure if I were to ask Lucasfilm about the endless avenues of columns and rotundas, all of which were designed in our world as powerful coils intended to produce electromagnetism, most likely, carrying the current in loops, and I've been over uh, that already, they would tell me the people of Naboo were simply being artistic and hoping to inspire others to the same, like the Renaissance narrative, but you and I know better. As you can see, the Naboo scenes were filmed in actual locations throughout Italy. Lucasfilm artists softened the impact of the Antiquitech when adding the Maté paintings as everything is more rounded in the final edit. The spires and spikes intended as conduits of electricity have been shaved down considerably, though the skeletal remains of the Millennial Kingdom city is still as awkwardly in your face as Zaza Gabor slapping a police officer. That is another 90s reference in case you were wondering. Statements such as that one and where's the juice? is how the original prequels audience process things. I'm simply attempting to be culturally relevant. As I was saying earlier, you had to have been there. Queen Amidala's walking closet is another giveaway to what this script writer was after. The end product drew its inspiration from the wardrobe of Jinnipil. Who was she? What do they teach in history class nowadays? And Jinnipil was the last queen consort of Mongolia, obviously. Wikipedia informs us that her most popular portrait, here being compared with Luke and Leia's mother, is actually confused and that somebody else is donning the makeup, but did the artist at Lucasfilm know that? I could show you her real portrait, and there is hardly a difference. And anyways, the plotline of Episode 1 involved a body double posing as Queen Amidala, while Padme played the part of the Queen's servant. Oh fine, how, how about I just do it for you? Here is the Wikipedia-approved Jennifer. Her hairdo is as Star Wars as they come, putting Leah's bagel buns to shame. And you'll never believe who she was married to. Bog Khan is who. Whoop-dee-doo, right? The surname is what you want to pay attention to. The Khan in, I guess that's Bogd or Bod Khan, tells us he was a Khan. More importantly, that he was descended from none other than Genghis Khan. Mm-hmm, that Khan. The one and only. No, not the one from Star Trek II. If you need a refresher, Genghis Khan was the founder and first great Khan emperor of the Mongol Empire, which is furthermore said to have become the largest contigu contiguous empire in history after his death in 1227. I am showing you his official bio so as to highlight the glaring oversight. Nowhere is Tartaria mentioned. And why is that? The Illuminati written history books won't show you that part. Despite the redactions, I have come prepared with maps of antiquity. I'm showing a few on this page, another on the next. Well, isn't that strange? Grand Tartary and the Mongol Empire are positioned along the same borders and at the same crossroads. 
Grand Tartary has the habit of shifting in size, depending upon the age of the map, becoming Greater Tartary and Lesser Tartary at times, but then again so did the Mongol Empire. Why doesn't the official narrative want to talk about Tartaria? And then we see here, I'm on the bottom of 67, if you need caught up, I am showing you a declassified CIA document from 1957, which describes Soviet Russia's scrubbing of Tartar history from the books. The writer says the history of Tartary was rewritten, but then corrects himself and clarifies that it was way worse and that it was actually falsified. In this way, the, docu the documents suggest the Muslims of that region, and in fact, generations of Muslims, have forever been denied the opportunity of learning the true facts regarding their nation's past. That's a large swath of land to collectively erase the memory of, but it appears as though the Ruskies were a success. Forever is a long time. I'm thinking the USSR pulled an Alderaan. That would be the adoptive world of Princess Leia, which blew up in episode four, thanks in part two, Grand Moff Tarkin and the Death Star. Really, I don't want to assume who my audience is this time around. Might be Trekkies for all I know. It's reports like, like what we just read, which makes me wonder if the Galactic Empire would have altogether scrubbed Alderaan from the books as well as the collective memory in, in a generation or two. Have they been a success? In this way, they would have painted themselves as something other than the aggressors. That's propaganda for you, just like what we see with the, the destruction of Tartaria. But then I hope you notice something regarding the mysterious disappearance of Tartary. The U.S. didn't challenge the USSR. Not publicly. Even if, if, even if a scarce few of us happened to read about it in a declassified intel report. Why not? I mean, had the American government wanted to beat the communists at their own game, why not make a case for Tartary in between the duck and cover drills? No, even the Western governments dropped Greater Tartar Tartary like a bad habit. Kind of like how the Soviets had the perfect opportunity to expose the Apollo 11 moon landing for the obvious hoax that it was. And they bowed out. That should give us all pause as to who is actually calling the shots. It has been suggested that Jennipel is the woman depicted in this photo. She was executed in 1938 as part of the Stalinist repressions in Mon uh, Tartary, or Mongolia. Except here is how it went down. The government of the Mongolian People's Republic accused their once beloved queen of gathering material in order to stage an uprising with the help of Japan. Thank God that we have Snopes to fact check us along the way and play the part of the Nuh uh people. This isn't Jinnipil, y'all. The people at Snopes said nope. And so, if this isn't Jinnipil, then it looks as though she got all dressed up for nothing. Some have suggested that Genghis Khan was in reality Yahusha HaMashiach, but I'm not even close to being convinced of that, even if Tartary may indeed be the reestablished borders of Noah's son, Yapeth, or Shem. What does seem apparent is that this Genghis Khan fellow had a major role to play in the fermenting of Greater Tartaria, just as assuredly as Jinnipil and the last Khan witnessed its demise. The last time that we are shown the Renaissance planet is with the death of Queen Amidala. The sun is setting over Naboo. It is nearly nighttime, the first occasion when darkness has been shown there, if I'm not mistaken. Her funeral procession leads to a colonnade closely resembling the one that they supposedly had built for the Panama Pacific International Exposition in 1915. 
That would be the uh, San Francisco World Fair. With the closure of Episode 3, the Republic has given way to the Empire, the thousand years has ended, and the narrative has carried us forward to our own present short season. George Lucas would add a quick glance at Naboo for another one of his special editions, but only to be included within Return of the Jedi's ever-growing closing montage. We are not allowed a looksy-loo into the civilization that represents freedom from slavery until the Emperor is toppled. May, uh, making the Prince of Darkness connection with Emperor Palpatine is the easy part. Uh, many, many people have done that. They might as well be doppelgangers. It is he who is responsible for toppling the thousand years of peace and justice, which the Jedi oversaw, exposing the reality of the Sith when and where there was deemed none. You almost get the feeling that he arose out of the abyss and that the Empire was the natural outflow of his arrival, but not without first manipulating everyone, including the Jedi. Lucas may have offered us our biggest truth in plain sight pill with the final revelation of his prequel trilogy, albeit an obvious one, that Palpatine was a master of duality. He was both the Supreme Chancellor of the Republic, waging war against the Separatists, and the Dark Lord Sidious leading the Separatists in their campaign against the Republic. He was manipulating all sides, making heroes and villains out of everyone, and only a select few like Count Doku were in on the stage act. Even the Jedi served as ceremonious Sith Master as generals of the very clone army which he was responsible for creating. Eventually, Padme put it together with a few other truthers, like Senator Mon Motha and Bel Organa, though Anakin Skywalker flipped his lid and went into an angry rage at her suggestion, being the typical normie. I said, I said identifying Satan in the Star Wars storyline was the easy part. Palpatine's far less dis discussed connection can be made with Order 66 and Pope Clement V. It is this very Pope who betrayed the Knights Templars, all of whom served him during the Clone Wars. I must be getting my wires crossed. I meant the Crusades. We are often told how not one local monarch had authority over the Templar Knights, and that they were free to come and go as they pleased throughout the kingdom of Christendom. It is only the Pope of Rome whom they answered to, and he betrayed them, backing the arrest warrant that led to the worldwide manhunt on Friday the 13th, 1307. Oh, and one more thing, I'd nearly forgotten. Where would the fall of the Templars be without Prince Philip IV of France? I have your connection. The identity of the man who betrayed and murdered the Knights Templar, hunting them down like dogs, was given to us in the person of Darth Vader, the Order 66 Enforcer. Perhaps now you're seeing why I thought to include a Star Wars discussion within my end of the Millennial Kingdom paper. Some of you may still be confused. I'm guessing it's because you liked the icing and the cherry on top and chose to skip ahead. Though, obviously, if you're listening live tonight, you heard the whole thing. Don't do that unless you are prepared to deal with the consequences. I know there are many occult-based accusations floating around and that we are expected to believe them uh, regarding the Templars. Freemasonry certainly claims descendancy from the Templars, but I have been over this already. All of that is information given to us by the Ministry of Truth. You don't need to stray off the path to find it. The conspiracy of the Templars is quite literally force-fed to us as part of the official narrative, and then many will go around repeating the intel as if the normies need to be woke to their schemes. Why must we fall into the trap of propaganda laid out by our controllers? Emperor Palpatine did the same thing, you know. He stood before the Senate claiming there was a Jedi rebellion and that an attempt had been made on his life, leaving, um, uh, leaving him scarred and deformed. 
but that it had furthermore been foiled. He said the remaining Jedi would be hunted down and defeated, inciting an uproarous applause among those listening in. Palpatine was the master builder who lied about everything and they believed him. It was while ushering in the new order for a safe and secure society, in his words, that Padme responded, mostly speaking to herself. So this is how liberty dies, with thunderous applause. Propaganda is a vixen for sure. Even after the rebellion won the day in episode 6, how many normies do you suspect would still have believed that the Jedi were the good guys? All right, well, that's where I ended right there. Um, hopefully you guys are all still hanging with me here, and um, hopefully you guys enjoyed that. A lot of information. It was a bit different than my normal presentations. Um, and uh, I hand it over to the jury now, as usual. Let me know your thoughts. Hopefully you guys didn't mind me talking about... Um, I try to stray from talking about Hollywood movies on Sabbath, but I thought it was... Um, uh, I thought it was a good tie-in to the subject matter at hand overall. I think it was a great tie-in. It was uh, well worth putting in. Yeah, there's obviously the other one that, you know, people are talking about right now. Uh, you know, the clones. Now, a lot of people are talking about clones. You know, I've been kind of, like, really kind of standoffish with the clone, you know, talking about and stuff. But it's interesting, that's one of the, the main themes of the prequel trilogies as well, that there was a whole clone army that was produced. Yeah, you cover a lot, so it's hard to uh, even begin to start a discussion with so many different topics. But yeah, real good job and uh, covered a lot of ground. It was very informative. Yeah, I mean, and it's, it's, it's taken me a long time to get to this point. Uh, of saying, you know, I, I think that there, if we're looking at a timeline, I think that 500 to 1500 is a good looking point. And, you know, some of the things I still need to cover. Uh, what happens around 1500? Well, you have 1492, Columbus sails the ocean blue. Uh, was it 1511? Was uh, Martin Luther nailing his uh, 95 thesis to the wall? And um, if you guys know my my thought, I mean, I'll be talking about this probably in a further um, conversation. But you, if you guys know my thoughts on the uh, Reformation, was that that was all run by Rome. And what better way to divide and conquer, destroy any kingdom unity there was, but to create the Reformation? Just completely fracture into hundreds, thousands of denominations. I mean, what better way to do that? Um, and, you know, as I pointed out before, never mind the fact that uh, the printing press was outlawed and yet, you know, Rome's like, no, don't don't print those Bibles. Don't do it. You know, uh, so you got that. You got 1492, you got Columbus and all of a sudden the Spaniards and then the French and the English, they're all going over to this new world. That's one of the big questions a lot of us have. What's going on in the new world? Uh, but they start coming over and creating this whole narrative and destroying everything and killing off cultures and um, you know, all sorts of stuff. There's just a lot of stuff happening at, at that time uh, that's really fascinating. And um, I, you know, I've barely tapped into what what I think. You know, with, and then of course there's the uh, the Renaissance, um, where you know I've come to a long time to come to um, these conclusions or this idea that you know the Renaissance was a rebellion as well. I think the Renaissance was using the technology from the MK, but, you know, perverting it into, um, into the occult and so on and so forth. So, 
I concur. One thing that uh, before I'd ever heard of uh, the uh, millennial reign, um, I had always, uh, I had previously understood that the dark ages were exactly that dark ages. And a lot of, a lot of the dark ages was in fact, just made up history to uh, deceive what was really going on. And then when I was first coming into an understanding in the millennial reign and Tartarian, the mud floods, I started looking at the different maps with the I-600 or one and looking at uh, the uh, different theories that there was a thousand years of history missing. And that in of itself is what led me into uh, wanting to research the uh, millennial kingdom. So that breakdown is pretty good because it's kind of hard to tell what the fake history, what the given history of Rome, what actually did happen and what was hidden from us from the actual real millennial kingdom. Right, and that's the hard part, right? Because I, I gave a lot of official history tonight, and it's hard to know, um, you know, are the dates exact? Did they, you know, kind of mesh some things up and, you know, move things around a century here and there? How did they rearrange everything? I don't really know, obviously. And But one of the things that um, I, I, I've learned more and more in this in this game is that I'm really becoming more and more convinced that Satan doesn't invent anything. Uh, he literally he takes something that exists and he perverts it. And so it, it's probably like that with history. I think a lot of the history that we have in the books is it, it happened in some way or shape or form, um, but not in the way that is um, advertised. That's where the Ministry of Truth comes in and flips everything, right? And I, I, for for those of you who know what I'm talking about, Auschwitz is the best example I can give. It, where we know that you know World War II sucked, a lot of people died. It was horrible. People went to prison camps, but a, sometimes a shower is just a shower. That's that's all it is. And so people see something there that isn't really there, and that's what history is like. It's like you know something was really there, but we're maybe diverted to something else. Um, now somebody had a couple of people comment in here. Um, I just want to throw out my ideas on George Lucas. Uh, there's a comment. I knew George Lucas was in the occult esoteric, but they seem to enjoy telling what they know as if it's fiction. I'm not saying that George Lucas is in the know. Um, we have this idea, I think, a lot that uh, you kind of rise to some sort of rank, and then they just sit you down in a chair and be like, okay, here's what really happened with JFK, and here's what really happened, you know, blah, 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 and, you know, you know the, the moon map is legit, and all this, like, they know all this kind of stuff, you know. And I don't think that's the way it works, particularly in the intel field, where it's very compartmentalized. Like, if you look at the, the Manhattan Project, right, there were thousands of people working on that, and nobody knew what the person on their left or right were doing. They had no idea what they were doing. And that's that's the way it works with this stuff. Like you don't just come into this and you just you just you know have all these secrets and tee hee 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 and nobody else knows about it. If anything, I mean, if I had to um, uh, put my my hunch into this is that the the poets of old, uh, the Greek poets and so on and so forth, they would talk about they would always start their epic you know poems like think of Homer by calling upon the muses. And they would they would ask that the muses come and possess them, so that they could then tell the story as the muses 
um, you know, know it. And so I think a lot of the time when we're getting fed these kind of truths, I mean, there are obvious, like, you know, C like there are movie scripts out there that are straight CIA, like no doubt, no doubt about that, or, you know, Intel organizations and so on and so forth. But, you know, it's very possible that the, the, the Ruakoth, the, the, the evil spirits, fallen angels, whoever, are actually telling these stories to us. Um, that they are using people uh, of their choosing who they channel to tell them. And I'm just throwing that out there. Uh, one other thing that was put in here was, um, oh yeah, same with music, exactly. Another thing that was put he out there was my thoughts on the 144,000. Uh, and in the past, you know, I have looked into that idea. Were the, Knight, the Knights Templars the 144,000? I don't think they were. I think the 144,000 were like co-rulers um, of Messiah on the earth, right? And we can get into the, more of that discussion. But I think if there is a connection with the Knights Templars and the Millennial Kingdom, that they were a type of, um, they weren't like ruling kings. They were like a fighting, like a monk-like fighting force. Um, and, you know, keeping keeping the road safe to Jerusalem, right? And uh, so maybe not that Jerusalem. Maybe it was a different Jerusalem. I don't really know. But um, yeah. Oh, and one other uh, question, uh, Marianne asks, I'm not sure if you mentioned here, but what was your opinion on what Tartary was? That's a really good question. And Genghis Khan, who he was, I've heard many other uh, perspectives. Curious if you can speak more on your view. I actually don't have a view on that. It, my, my view is that uh, in this, in this uh, you know, alternative history, you know, or, uh, you know, stolen history uh, research, people... Uh, say all the time it gets a lot of hits like if you want to you know just put something up on youtube you know tartary you know that that gets people viewing it and i as you guys have noticed i, I purposely don't do that I, I do a lot of things that would i don't do a lot of things that that if i did do it i would get more views and hits and so on and so forth and one of the reasons is because i think it would be a little bit dishonest on my part because i I don't think Tartary was exactly the way people advertise it. Like the whole world was Tartary, you know, the North, United States and, and Europe. No, I think that there was literally a large swath of land that was called greater, lesser, just grand Tartary, uh, Tartaria, different, you know. Um, and at this point in time, I think that it, it clearly all comes into this somehow. At this point in time, I haven't really talked about it much because I, 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 I don't know. I don't really want to comment on it because I just haven't put in the legwork, right? I don't really have an opinion on it. I know it was there and it was important and it was erased. Um, but um, I, I don't... Question for you, Noel, on that. Go ahead. Well, I have read and I can't... I went back and I looked and tried to find uh, where I had read it. Thought I had saved the research paper. And it was on the uh, Lost Tribes in the early migrations of the lost tribes and where they went and in the um research paper they were talking about relating to different verses how they had gone to the east and then there was other um sightings that showed that uh most of them ended up in Cathay well Cathay being you know an ancient city even before China became China that would have been in the uh part of the T Tartarian Empire and one of the first great or grand cities of it. And uh, knowing that the tribes had been given the um, blessing that uh, Abraham's seed would 
be as numerous as the sand of the sea uh, that couldn't be numbered, that they would actually uh, repopulate the world. And so they had actually begun, uh, it was those 10 tribes that uh, begun that empire in greater Tartaria back after you know the uh, original uh, diaspora and dispersion of the tribes. And some of the other research I've done, they were uh, showing that uh, or um, inferring that Genghis Khan was uh, actually Caucasian and not Mongol, and that those or his hordes, so to speak, were part of that uh, original uh, empire that spread across the entire plat. And then if you follow the journeys and the uh, the wars of uh, Genghis Khan going all the way back to uh, the invasion of uh, the Holy Lands, of Turkey and the Holy Lands, um, that would uh, uh, speak to the timeline in uh, history of where that was. But they were also talking about, which I thought was fascinating, that uh, the Mongols actually baptized. We'll show us some other information that, uh, you know, led me to believe that there might be some uh, uh, truth to that understanding of uh, who those original Tartarians were. And then, of course, in the same paper, they were saying, you know, at that time there was a uh, the Bering Strait land bridge was in existence and that eventually uh, the uh, 10 tribes had migrated from that land of Tartaria when Tartaria expanded, as it shows the overall empire down into the Americas, down into uh, uh, Mexico and uh, all the way to Peru. And uh, those migrations were actually by the uh, uh, Hebrew tribes. I just thought it was fascinating, but it seems to coincide with a lot of different pieces of history and uh, um, fills in some gaps on maybe uh, the way I was viewing uh, the history of Tartaria. I was in a study this week and um, I thought it was really interesting that uh, I've never heard of somebody talk about this uh, philosophy before, or this theory, but they had said that the Millennial Kingdom had happened and that now Yeshua's um, kingdom is spiritual now and that that when people die, like uh, that, they would just are now going to to the new Jerusalem in the in the third heaven, and that this earth is just going to continue on. And as I was, you know, asking questions and that, and I said, well, you know, what do you think about the new Jerusalem coming down from the heavens, where it says in Revelations 21? And and he's like, no. He says, like when John had the vision, he said he was actually had was taken up, and he saw it coming down from the seventh heaven into the third, and that's where it's going to remain. And that um, that this new this spiritual life that we're living, that you find Yeshua and believe him on the earth, and now it's spiritual going into the heavens. And I thought to myself, good grief. Like if this is it and this is what the world is going to be like and this is going to be forever ending because he used the scripture about, you know, outside the new Jerusalem, there's the 
the murderers, the sorcerers, the, you know, the liars, the thieves, and all that scripture. He says, yeah, like you're that that is outside and that you nobody will be able to enter into the kingdom and that when you die, that's where you're going. And um, I didn't really get to flesh a lot of it out, but I thought, wow, I never heard of someone had a like a theory like that. And yeah, he's literally convinced of it. And I thought that was really interesting. It's actually, um, I, I, I don't know if it's common, definitely not an evangelicalism, uh, because, you know, evangelicalism has this idea that, you know, Revelation is future tense, and that's like the big thing that you got to push in the truth of the world. That like, guys, it's about to happen. You know, it's it's about to all go down. The Great Tribulation, um, and um, but the, the idea that the Millennial Kingdom actually happened and it was a spiritual thing is actually pretty common. Probably, especially if you got outside of America and went to more like um, I would imagine like maybe even the Greek Orthodox Church. I'd have to look into that. But um, and uh, you see a lot of. Um, uh, older writings that implicate that as well now just so you all know i feel like this is where it fills in the gaps for me uh where all the pieces come together because uh if you look back at my writings from several years ago i started like pushing in my writings that that it was fulfilled that it happens and um and that you know when yahushua said that these things would happen in that generation that they really did and i didn't really know what to do with it at the time and you know, I, C.S. Lewis said that one of the one of the most embarrassing things in the Bible is the what he said the unfulfilled prophecy that he said that Jesus, uh, you know, said this thing that it never happened. Well, I would go, well, no, it did happen. But then you look at the, you know, the the different preterist positions and so on and so forth. They would say, well, yeah, it did happen. But then the the, the millennial kingdom was spiritual, and I would go that doesn't line up with anything in the scripture. I, I don't think it's just spiritual. I think it, was, it had to be physical. So I didn't really know what to do with it. And, you know, that's when all this obviously comes together, right? Where I'm like, oh, okay, there it is. There's the missing piece. You know, what you call it Tartarian society, right? Greater, like, there's the millennial kingdom right there. Well, I definitely wouldn't have thought that, uh, you know, that this was a thing. I kept obviously heard of preterists and futurists and stuff, but um, he never said, he, he, he thinks that the millennial kingdom actually happened on... I don't know whether he thought it was on earth, but there was a destruction. And when I confronted and said, well, where do you think the millennial kingdom was? Yeah. I mean, I, I and now that I think about it, he kind of really did skirt around the the answer on that one. But uh, yeah, it was totally new to me. I thought uh, that was pretty amazing. The idea that the millennial kingdom would be spiritual only goes way back to early uh, Christianity and think about the reasons why. So, uh, when when Rome came in and took over, they can't have uh, Christians saying things like, uh, you know, oh, you know, the empire is going to come to an end and the beast is going to come to an end, all this kind of stuff, and we're going to usher in this physical kingdom. They couldn't have that because they wanted to be the millennial kingdom, and so they would they would start pushing this idea that the kingdom would be spiritual. Now, uh, his name was I think Papias, if I'm saying that right. Um, I'd have to look at my notes, but I've mentioned him a couple times in the past six months, uh, and he he was the person who wrote the gospel of John. And I always have to, to specify this. So nobody freaks out is that he was the scribe. Okay. So a lot of these people, when they wrote these books, they would have a professional scribe, write it for them. They would dictate it to them and they would write it down. Well, Papias is the guy who wrote the gospel of John. And I think revelation, uh, maybe not revelation, but definitely the gospel of John. Well, he, um, 
his he had he was really really popular in early christianity he had the first ever commentary it was like a three volume set commentary on the gospel of john and revelation and this guy knew john he knew the apostles he was good friends with polycarp you would think this guy his writings would be really cherished he has sayings of yahushua in there that never land in gospel in the gospels we have some of those sayings and all of his work is scrubbed. Why? Because it was embarrassing. Well, why was it embarrassing? Some of the early church fathers tell us. Because he was saying that John, the apostles, and Yahushua were all advocating that the kingdom, the millennial kingdom, would be physical on this earth. And they couldn't have that. There's, there's, there's church fathers out there saying how embarrassing that was. Because that's bad. they would say that's bad theology. Uh, so they had, to, they had to scrub the guy. Uh, there's quotes in his writings about how Yahushua would say that when the kingdom would come, like the you know the grapes on the the, the clusters, and there'd be wine everywhere and be free flowing, and it would just be this incredible physical kingdom. Um, so, anyways, all that to say that that's why the church went to the spiritual mode early on, and um, and so that's actually pretty common, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah, and as John, John Q just summed it up really well. He said, uh, the thousand years was a physical manifestation of the spiritual kingdom of heaven. I, I, I don't know if I could sum that up any better. The kingdom of heaven is ongoing, right? It, it, the kingdom is within us, right? And it, the kingdom of heaven is there. He is not of this world. It's, it's elsewhere, and it's within us. But there was a time, a measurement for a thousand years where it was manifested on this earth. And that's the big thing that people flip out about. They're like, the, 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 the futurists are totally okay with a millennial kingdom in the future. But, uh, you know, and knowing that it comes to an end. But if you tell them it already came to an end, they're like, they're like oh, no, you, you're saying his kingdom is not forever? Oh, that's, that's anti-biblical. And it's like, well, no, it... It, it, it's literally a, a me, like, yeah, his kingdom is eternal, but there is a thousand years measurement where the people would rebel against it. And, um, you know, that's that's as I pointed out tonight, that is the story of humanity. It's the story of the Bible. It's that mankind will always rebel. You can remove Satan. They will still rebel. They will always choose ultimately the curse rather than the blessing. It's the sad state of humanity. 